Welcome to part two of episode 19 of the Scary Stuff Podcast. In part one, we covered the original Nightmare on Elm Street and Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. So here in part two, we're going to be covering Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, then Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, and we have very special guests for both. If you haven't checked out the audio for the first two movies yet, we definitely recommend giving that a listen before proceeding with the rest of this episode, as items we covered in our reviews of the first two movies are referenced in our discussions of movies three and four, and not having heard our review of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, is going to make the ending of this particular part of the episode even more bizarre than it already is. With that being said, thank you so much for listening, and let's get into our review of Dream Warriors. All right, for our next movie, we are doing Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And for this movie, we have a very, very special guest. She is the author of the novellas Benny Rose, The Cannibal King, The Worm and His Kings from Off Limits Press, Drinking Tea from my Off Limits Press mug, uh, the anthology Unfortunate Elements of My Anatomy, and recently the novel Queen of Teeth. And as of this recording, just recently released the story If Trans Then Mogrify, which is on castofwonders.org. So please join me in welcoming Haley Piper. Yay! Hello. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> How are you? I am good. How are all of you? Doing great. Keeping it together. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, delighted to have you. We've been following your work. We've been following you on Twitter for a while. I mentioned before, I loved Worm and His Kings. And usually if we see, you know, there's an author we're really fond of who tweets about something a movie that they're particularly fond of we make a note you know maybe you know they'd like to come on the pot at some point and this is a movie that you had mentioned before that you had tweeted that it was your favorite slasher so we'd had it noted for a while that whenever we got the dream warriors we'd ask it and so thank you so much for coming on to chat about it with us thank you oh totally i love this movie i just i just had a big gush fest on twitter today Yeah, I think we had you down for this one and Life Force. So oh, yeah. If, nice. Excellent you'd be choices. down to come back for our Toby Hooper episode whenever we get to it, we'd love to have you. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. <laughs> but so yeah, so this is your favorite slasher. So uh, tell us a little bit about like how you first saw the film and your whole history with the Elm Street franchise. Oh, sure. Um, God, that's going a ways back. <laughs> I think this was actually the first one I saw in part. like. I remember being a little kid and our local station would always like they would have like Nightmare on Elm Street marathon weeks sometimes where they would play one movie a night and we weren't allowed to watch them at that time. But I was always kind of like fascinated. But I think that I was channel flipping one time and I caught like part of like the last half hour of this. And that was probably the first time I actually watched anything from any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Okay. I didn't have any context for what was going on whatsoever. But yeah, so years later, I think I was in high school when I finally watched uh, the first one on a VHS because we could still do that, uh, renting a VHS from the local video store. And then I didn't, I wasn't like kind of pressed about watching any of the sequels because, you know, a lot with, as with a lot of series, they tend not to be that, that great. So I was kind of like, oh, whatever, I don't need to watch any of the other ones. But one of my friends was like, no, no, you really have to watch part three so by that point, I was getting Netflix. So I, I got it one night and I was like, oh, my God, that was great. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely my favorite one of my probably my favorite horror franchise, uh, mm. definitely my favorite slasher franchise. And yeah, this is my favorite. This is one of my favorite movies ever, like any genre, any subgenre. Nice. This is like just up there with among my favorite movies. 
it's kind of similar for me. I watched these way back on VHS in a friend's basement and I when I was younger and I didn't do a lot of horror movies and we watched these three and this was the one that kind of carried me through all of them because I you know horror movies scared the crap out of me as a kid (laughs) but this one you could almost if you squinted real close you could kind of pretend it was an X-Men movie yep (laughs) and that was what carried me through when I first saw them and even even now when I'm watching I'm like yeah I can see it. This is almost X-Men-ish. It's, it's New Mutants was trying to be this and failed completely, but it was trying. <laughs> Although I imagine if you if you first saw the last half hour only, it probably gave you an unreasonable expectation for how much Harryhausen-style uh, special effects this series had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely got confused at that point because I'd seen like Jason and the Argonauts and like the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad at that point, and those had like this. I think this was a little smoother, maybe just because it had the benefit of time. Yep. Uh, skeleton wise, <laughs> I had when I rewatched it this time, I had completely. I mean, I, I forgot. I'd say. 80% of it. I remembered like two things going into this from when I saw it. Cause it was, you know, it's like 1988 when I saw it and I'm old. So I don't remember the context of when I saw it in, but I remember this movie well from when I was a kid, like it just stuck out of my head. I, I, I love the crap out of this. And it really had a lot to do with that feeling of each one being their own type of like superhero. Absolutely. I loved it. The embracing of dream powers and and also, I think this is the first one where Freddy really starts finding his voice and starts becoming the snarky kind of asshole that he is that really makes him so grand. Yeah, this one definitively embraces dark comedy more than the first two. Yeah, we'll probably talk about the the dark comedy elements more as we go, because one of the reasons I was really, really, really looking forward to talking about this one was ever since I saw the Never Sleep Again documentary, I had meant to sit down and read the original draft of this, which was by Wes Craven mm-hmm. and Bruce Wagner. I don't Wagner. Actually have Bruce Wagner. I was blanking on the name for a second. And I'd had that a copy of that script for years and never got around to reading it. And I finally read it today. And wow, is that a ride? <laughs> yeah, so it's basically completely rewritten by Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont, right? Not as much as you would think. The We can talk about it more as we go, but basically... It's the fundamentals are largely there. The whole asylum element is there. The characters are generally there, but it's much more Nancy's story. Mm-hmm. It's much more Freddy's is is quippier in it, just like he is in in this. So it's not like the quips and the dialogue were unique to Russell and Darabont's approach, which I kind of expected. Uh, tonally, it's closer to the first one than this is, and. When you get to the end of the original script, there's basically the portion where this movie ends, minus the junkyard sequence. And then there's a finale after that in the original script, which is basically a splatterpunk Roadrunner cartoon. It's what? fascinating. I actually, it, it, they talk in Never Sleep Again about the movie was too ambitious and there was no way they could, that was 100% right. There was no <laughs> way they would have been able to film this. And there's a couple bits of it that are so absurdly graphic that I actually muttered, oh my God, out loud <laughs> while reading it. Does, does Freddie actually say meep meep? Because I, I want to read Not that far script off. if that's the case. Not far off. But the, one of the things I was interested in, and I'm glad everyone else said the same thing, was going into this, I was, I was expecting this to kind of be the main one that a lot of us first saw as kids, which kind of seems to be a running thing with a lot of folks, where yeah. this is 
kind of where a lot of folks first became aware of the franchise. And Dawkins. No. And, <laughs> and Dawkins. But for me, this one was very particularly where I became not aware of the franchise per se, but interested in it. Yes. Which has to do with the box art or the poster specifically. So growing up, I'd mentioned on the pod before that I was what six when this movie came out and i was a you don't have to throw that in my face every time uh, i will do it every <laughs> opportunity i get <laughs> and i was a direct-to-video fantasy kid so in our video store growing up the way they had the sci-fi fantasy section laid out was it was four wire racks set in a square with a path in between and so on the inside of that were the sci-fi fantasy movies but in the middle was a freestanding rack and that was where all the horror movies were nice. nested in the middle of this square. <sighs> so every time I wanted to go rent sword in the sorcerer, it was like an Orphic descent into the underworld <laughs> <laughs> because I would have to muster up the courage. Like I would have my copy of iron master in my hands and I could feel all of this box art behind me <laughs> and it was like, come on, look, just look. <laughs> And it was like, don't look, don't look, don't look, because it's going to scare you. So I would literally just navigate the walls and then get out. And But every now and again, I would work up the bravery to just, all right, I'm going to look. And, you know, look, and it's the box art for, you know, one of the Friday the 13th or, you know, Rabbit Grannies was one I distinctly <laughs> remember terrifying me as a kid of all things, a trauma movie. But I had seen the box arts. There were the first three Nightmare on Elm Streets. First one terrified me, the box art, which is the poster with, you know, the artistic rendering of Freddy. Second box art was not the poster. It's just a photo of Freddy kind of like reaching around the logo. So they, they didn't use the theatrical art. But the box art for the third one, there's a kid with a big spike mace on it. Yep. yep. And this is me as the fantasy fan who's holding his copy of Sword and the Sorcerer that he's going to rent for like the eighth time. And said, oh my gosh, that kid's got a mace. And then there's the character who is presumably supposed to be Taryn. Obviously, all these characters who were drawn in were just presumably drawn off character pitches, not off the performers. And Terrence depicted with knives, but the length of them, they look like short swords. Yep. And then Kincaid's on there with a bat. But so the visual image of it was you instantly have, oh my gosh, the protagonists in this have weaponry. There is some semblance of people taking a fight to this big, scary monster that terrifies me. So it was instantly fascinating just from the image. It gave me some childlike sense of hope. And then you read the back of the box, if I was brave enough to do that. And like Jake said, it's basically it sounds like the New Mutants. <laughs> so like, well, this, is, this sounds great. I, I always loved that image on this because for the same reasons, you, but it's also it's that vanishing point art that so many 80s movies I liked had like the oh, yeah. Megaforce, uh, Dreamscape, Dreamscape, all these, you know, it's always that sort of vanishing point thing. But I always, I think I always associated this very closely with Megaforce because I had weird associations as a kid and, you know, as an adult. <laughs> but yeah, I usually think it's the best of the, the art for this entire series. It vaguely reminded me of Krull. With like the, the monster in the background. and the That was probably part of it because I, I watched Kroll even more than <laughs> yeah. I watched Sword of the Sorcerer. So. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. And, and again, like you said, that, that was what drew me in. And to probably, it, I don't remember exactly, but I have a feeling that the reason I was willing to watch any of these with my friends, Jamie and Kim and my brother, was because Dream Warriors sounded like a superhero movie. And I'm sure that's probably how they lured me into it. It's like, oh, you'll like it. It's a superhero movie. Uh-huh. 
You know? also told me uh, Return of the Living Dead was a comedy. Again, as a kid, I was bad at horror movies. Thank you, because like I'm one of the only people in my groups or anything that seems to acknowledge that Return of the Living Dead is freaking scary. It's scary. Uh, I, 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 that movie still scares me. It, I, all right, I. I don't remember if I talked about this on our our first episode. We did the Return of the Living Dead series, and probably was still feeling it out. I didn't want to talk about this particular thing, but <laughs> Return of the Living Dead is one of two movies to ever give me nightmares. Oh, huh. like recurring nightmares. Oh my! Like I yeah, I I thought about like because I didn't like zombie movies until Shaun of the Dead happened. So and that was in two thousand one ish, somewhere around there. Anyway, it wasn't you know when i was a teenager so like zombie movies scared the crap out of me and return of the living dead was the only one i had seen entirely at that point and i used to have nightmares about the trapdoor scene at the end him bursting through that's terrifying it's terrifying and when i first moved to delaware we were in a, a house that had a front porch and it had a door in the living room that went to the front porch that locked but apparently didn't shut real well and we didn't know this at the time <laughs> And we were in there, my brother, we didn't even have beds or anything. We, we My brother, uh, his now wife, and I were essentially camped out on the floor in the living room. And there was an incredible thunderstorm. And I still haven't seen the likes of it since. And during that, we got to talking about that movie. And a little bit later, the wind somehow blew open that door. Oh, wow. In the living room. Nice. And, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I had never been closer to a heart attack. But <laughs> man, if even so much as a cat had come into the house at that point it would have been on like i would have burned the whole place down <laughs> it would have been a disaster from go but yeah so yeah that movie's terrifying or was when i watch it now obviously i have a different track to it but i still remember that fear when i was watching it so yeah less so with this movie but i remembered being scared of one and two when we rewatched one and two for this series so yeah it's funny how those images as a kid just absolutely stay with you and the emotional reactions are kind of always there even if you know you can you watch it now, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's a little goofy. And then later at night, you're like, you know, lights are out. You're looking at the ceiling. It's like, less goofy now. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get too far into the movie itself, Nick, do you want to do the little production rundown? All right. So this is A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, directed by Chuck Russell, who me and Eric saw that one night up in Philly. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you're going to have to talk about that finally, huh? Yeah, he, uh, Chuck, well, real quick, Chuck Russell directed The Blob, The Mask, and The Scorpion King. So this was his directing debut. Rachel Tyler talks a bit in the Never Sleep Again documentary about Chuck having a background in producing, and they'd worked together on a few things. But one of the things Chuck Russell worked on was he was a co-writer and co-producer of Dreamscape. Yeah. I mentioned for two reasons. One is we just talked about it a couple episodes ago because it was directed by Joseph Rubin and co-written by David Lowry, who both worked on The Stepfather. So we talked we're, about we're it. We're going to have to do Dreamscape episode. at some point because but like we talked about it what twice this episode so far. I love Dreamscape. Yeah, I rewatched it for this. So yeah, I'd be I'd be down to talk about it. There's some fun stuff to talk about with that film. But also, yeah, because so Chuck Russell definitely had an excursion into a dream-based movie immediately before going into this. So yeah, he also uh, helped do a lot of changes on the script with Frank Darabont, one of the writers, who also has written The Mist, The Walking Dead, and The Blob. Looking at Frank Darabont's filmography prior to this, because again, with him and, and Chuck Russell, I was very curious about what they had done before this, because I knew essentially this was early credits for both of them. Right. Darabont's production history is fascinating. Prior to this, 
So the main thing is he did write and direct one thing, which is a short film based on The Woman in the Room, which is one of Stephen King's stories from Night Shift, apparently, which I haven't read. But his adaptation of it, it's a 30 minute short. It's currently on YouTube. It's quite good. It's a very difficult watch, but it's quite good, which he did in 1984. But before that, he was a production assistant on Hell Night, which Chuck Russell produced. He was the transportation captain on The Seduction, which Chuck Russell produced. He was the art department assistant on Trancers, Trancers. and he was a set dresser on Ken Russell's Crimes of Passion. (sighs) So he just kind of has this fascinating ping pong production assistant, transportation, art, set dressing, and then gets his big break with with Dream Warrior. So (laughs) I didn't realize that about the Arbonne, that this was his big break. Yep, this was one of the big ones, yep. And then he and Chuck Russell would both work on The Blob, which came out after this. Which is also awesome. (laughs) The Blob is fabulous, yeah. Blob is so good. Before their changes, uh, this was originally written by two people, Wes Craven, who uh, we know worked on People Under the Stairs, Swamp Thing, and the Scream franchise, and by Bruce Wagner, who wrote Maps to the Stars, Wild Palms, and White Dwarf. You know, it's it's interesting that you talked about that. We, we keep mentioning the script. Did anybody see that the other version, not versions of this, but that John Saxon and Robert Englund also wrote scripts that they wanted to make for the third movie? I didn't see them, but I know that England specifically mentions I can never sleep again that he wrote one, and I had heard it somewhere that Saxon wrote one, hmm. but I, did, I haven't found them. Well, I, I got a little bit about him, actually. Ooh. I'm just going to read it because, you know, paraphrasing feels weird at this point. So, this is actually just from Wikipedia. I don't want to, you know, pretend I did some deep research on it. <laughs> Before it was decided what script would be used for the film story, both John Saxon and Robert England wrote their own scripts for the third Nightmare film. In Saxon's script called How the Nightmare on Elm Street All Began. And I, I think this is funny because, of course, he would write a prequel because he would be in it more. Yep. <laughs> which would have been a prequel story. Freddy would ultimately turn out to have been innocent or at least set up for the murders by Charles Manson. What? Who, along with his followers, would have been the main culprits of the murderers. Freddy would be forced by the mob of angry parents to take a confession to the crime, which would enrage them further. After they lynch Freddy, he comes back to avenge his wrongful death by targeting the parents' children. So, again, fascinating. This is from Wikipedia, so maybe that's not accurate, but I want with all my heart for it to be accurate. You see, that's interesting because, you know, it would make so much more sense in a fashion that he is fueled by, you know, revenge against, you know, being wrongfully murdered. It's actually one of the things I got really excited about the remake for, because I got the impression they were doing that angle, that he was actually innocent. This was revenge. Of course, they screwed. We'll we'll get to how that got screwed over later. But but no, I would have enjoyed that. I like that Manson's presence further confuses where this movie actually takes place. Yes. If you remember in the second one, they all have California license plates on the cars, even though it's, you know, in Ohio. So. I think he was just like, California place must be California. And I had the same reaction until I found out it was in Ohio. (laughs) So in England's treatment called Freddy's Fun House, the protagonist would have been Tina Gray's older sister, who would have been in college by the time Tina was murdered and ends up coming back to Springwood to investigate how she died. In the script, Freddy had claimed that the 1428 Elm Street house for his own in the dream world, setting up booby traps like Nancy did against him. According to England, part of it later ended up being used as a pilot episode for Freddy's Nightmares mm. after the script had been lying unused. Oh, man, the pilot for that show was terrifying. Yeah, I, well, we're going to have to get to that. But I, I just thought that was interesting that there were, we just talked about, what, four different scripts for this film at this point? Or, yep. you know, 
which is basically what they average on the films we're about to get to. Because on the ones that are coming up is when we start really getting multiple screenwriters and, and multiple folks involved. Because this one had a two-year gap between two and three. But after this, we're back to one a year. And so it's so there's definitely going to be multiple drafts involved in the ones we have coming up. And I have to say, after all the ones we talked, I think they, they picked the right one. Yeah. From what you just all offered? Yes. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> Of those, yes. Although it's funny you mentioned the the Saxon one because Saxon had a much more significant part in the Craven Wagner draft. Uh-huh. I'll probably get into it more later because it touches on an element of Dream Warriors, the finished film that's kind of counter to something in the finished film that I find interesting. But basically, instead of in this film where he's he's basically gone away and he's and he's become a drunk security guard, in the original draft, the the movie opens with Nancy has been looking for her father. Because he's been on the hunt for Freddy for five years, where he basically went on this mission to track Freddy down, and which leads her to a location which becomes integral to the rest of the film. But what she finds out quickly is when she gets to the asylum location, which we have in Dream Warriors, obviously, Neil Gordon, who's Neil Guinness in that script, who's talking about the patients, he says, yeah, we got this one patient who, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and finds out it's her dad. Her dad, who has, um, this is gruesome, but he has cut his eyelids off to keep from falling asleep. And he basically functions as this, like, almost Yoda sage-like character because he's the person who introduces her to the concept of dream warriors. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he basically is the lead-in to a lot of this stuff because he's been doing all this research on Freddy for the intervening five years. So his function in it is very different. Huh. Fascinating. The, the eyelids thing made it into the script because that's like the first thing they mentioned one i guess it was one of the kids cut off his eyelids i forget the exact line but that's it's definitely in there right i like to think that ties this into butterfly kisses but that's neither here nor there (laughs) (laughs) this uh movie was edited by terry stokes who worked on the blob critters three and four and suburban commando (laughs) it was also edited by chuck weiss who worked on brothers in arms american eagle and martial law Cinematography by Roy H. Wagner, who worked on Witchboard, Blood and Bone, and Nick of Time. Music by Angelo Badalamente, who worked on, I had, I had to mention all of these. <laughs> so, Blue Velvet, City of Lost Children, Lost Highway, Secretary, Cabin Fever, and The Wicker Man remake. I mean, holy crap. <laughs> when you said you were going to mention all of them, I thought you were about to run down David Lynch's whole filmography because I'm pretty sure he did yes. all of them. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. But this was before all that because I think he started working with Lynch on Blue Velvet and this was right before mm-hmm. that. So, yep. yeah, this was exciting to see his name on it. Like I'd mentioned when we talked about Nightmare 2, one of the fun things I'm looking forward to in the franchise is every one of them has a different composer. There is no composer who's on more than one. So I'm really interested in how the, the soundscape evolves as kind of as we go through. But they keep like little bits of the theme stick around through the whole thing. Like the Elm Street theme you hear in the first movie, mm-hmm. it, it lasts. Like it persists through the series, even though it keeps changing composers. And I think that's, you know, it's it's part of Freddy. Yeah. So this is the movie that brings mm-hmm. it back. And because it was funny, I thought it was in two and then rewatching two, which was scored by Christopher Young. Oh, right. Because Christopher Young... Always does his own thing. Yeah. I'm not crazy about Young's score for two. I like his work a lot in general, but I'm not crazy about his score for two. But yeah, it's three is the one where that theme kind of comes back. And it was one of the striking things about the opening, which again, just sitting down and watching this film, like Nick and I saw it with a crowd. And it was one of the things like, it's fun watching the crowd pop for certain things as they come up. And one of them is when you hear that Freddie theme, 
you know, the Charles Bernstein recur for the first time in the opening. It was like, oh, yay. (laughs) (laughs) So good. It just transcends, you know, all the composers. It, it It's more part of the movie than anyone else's contribution to some degree. Yeah. And then Dawkins. Dawkins! <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody watch the music video for Dream Warriors? It's great. Multiple times. It's, it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I just, I love that it's essentially the first scene of this. It's just, she's building a paper mache docking house. It's like, this is great. <laughs> it's so good. It really is. It is such a blast. And it's funny, particularly watching it in close conjunction with the finished film, because this movie you know, has this ending, which is, you know, the only way that you can get rid of Freddy is basically exorcism, you know, holy water, crucifix, ritual, whatnot. But then the docking video presupposes or just a really high head voice metal solo will also <laughs> banish him. <laughs> you so, have to want it. One of the two. <laughs> what a nightmare. Who were those guys? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I like that there's two, you know, music videos that officially include Robert Englund and as Freddy. We'll talk about the, the other next one next coming episode. Up, yeah. And, you know, and the ripoff one, which actually incorporates the theme. And it's probably why they have to put up, you know, a warning that this is not associated every time you watch it. But, <laughs> yeah, we'll get to those. But I guess since since you mentioned Dokken already, we'll, we'll mention the, the event that Nick and I attended. Because speaking of the voice. So it was in June of 2017. I forgot this. It was sponsored by Bloody Disgusting. Yep. Chuck Russell, Heather Langenkamp, and Dokken were all in town for the Wizard World Convention in Philly. So for one night at Underground Arts in Philadelphia. Yay, Underground Arts. I love that venue. They had a screening of Dream Warriors with Chuck Russell and Heather Langenkamp doing live commentary. It was hosted by uh, Andre Gower from Monster Squad. It was! I was trying yes. to remember who hosted it. That's right. It was Andre Gower. I completely forgot. And so they gave gave a running commentary, and then afterwards, there was a live performance by Dawkins. Yes! Acoustic. It was just him. He didn't have the rest of the band. It was just on Dawkins. It was great! And acoustic guitar. But I, I, I chuckle at it because for, for a couple of reasons. One was, when he got to Dream Wars, he opened with uh, Into the Fire, which also plays in this film. Loud enough to wake the neighbors. And then he did, uh, I forget the second song he did. And the third song he did was Dream Warriors, and he said up front, he said... I can't reach these notes. If you want to sing the high part, go ahead. I can't hit it. So, so he sang it down an octave. And when it got to the chorus, he was like, come on, sing, sing. I can't hit it. And then he played one more song. And, and they started they, taking requests, but he like shot down every other one because they're like, oh no, I can't do that one anymore. And he started taking requests and he couldn't play any of them because he hadn't reworked them for acoustic guitar. So it was... What else do you guys want to hear? And someone would say, and I don't know the docking repertoire. So play ABC. ABC, ABC. Nope, nope, not going to work. Not going to work. <laughs> what else you got? Uh, play DEF. DEF, DEF. Nope, nope, not going to work. And so then he told jokes. He said, you want to hear a joke? I was on Jay Leno one time and he told me the funniest joke he'd ever heard. I'll tell you that. And so he told us jokes. Every so often he'd think, oh, wait, I, I think I know how to play this one. And he'd play another song and he'd do more jokes. <laughs> Oh, and then they played the blob. Then they played the blob, and I'll just pull this out for Haley's benefit. After the docket performance, they gave away these framed photos Aww. of Freddy Krueger and Dokken. Got one of those on my wall. I just think it's great that you guys, you know, that that whole Dokken story. It's just, it's perfect. It was so much fun. I mean, I was, it was like five times better than I expected. I had a blast. Everyone was lovely. I, we need to go to more horror stuff. <laughs> 
the really fun part of it, and, and like one of the things I've always enjoyed about conventions would be the opportunity to see things with an audience you don't normally get to see. And, and so it was it was so fun to get to see Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors, which is such a beloved entry in the franchise with fans who were so passionate and so oh, excited yeah. to be there. It was a blast. And I would go so far. Well, all right. So again, like we talked on the previous segments, I am watching these as we go. And I had only ever seen the first three in like a portion of, I think we determined it was the sixth one. And uh, I would say far and away, like by several touchdowns, this is the best of the entries so far. It's up there. Uh, it may be the best. Yeah. I, I think New Nightmare gives it a run for its money, but they really are two very different beasts. I mean, everything before New Nightmare is just so campy in its own realm. And New Nightmare is just modern day horror. Well, like I said, I only got three cards in my deck so far. <laughs> this was the ace. I knew you'd like it more than the first one. I wasn't sure about the second. Well, I've seen all of them, and I, I, I don't know best. I'm not good with objective stuff, but it's <laughs> it's absolutely my favorite. Long and away, like my, I can rank like whenever if somebody were to ask me, except for like Freddy versus Jason, because I haven't seen that in like 20 years, so I don't, I barely remember it. But um, I, I've seen everything with this, except for um, I haven't seen the TV show. I need to still watch the TV show. Oh, man, that TV show is so rough. It like some of the episodes in the TV show are like worse than the movie. So for anyone out there who has the Blu-ray set, because I discovered this while prepping for the third one, there are two episodes of the TV show that are available as bonus features on the Blu-ray set. They're episodes two and three. Episode two is directed by Tom McLaughlin, who did Friday the 13th Part 6, and it stars John Cameron Mitchell. And then the third one, I believe, is directed by Mick Garris and stars Laurie Petty. So it's both episodes, you get this really fun, you know, before they were famous, you know, actor bits and very prolific horror directors on both of them. And then the pilot, of course, was done by Toby Hooper. Are those on the bonus disc? Yeah, those are on the the, the bonus disc that has... Uh, okay, because I have that, so I gotta I gotta check that out then. So, Haley, you had mentioned this was one of your favorites. So what are the elements of this one that, that kind of put it ahead of a lot of the other ones in the franchise for you? I think it's just a matter of investment. I like characters in the other ones, but like this was the one where I'm just like, I really felt the most for the characters especially the kids like they are so alone in what they're going through and like this is especially the case like when philip is on the like the marionette dream sequence yes. mm -hmm. i i got i cried at this part today when i rewatched it uh -huh. because like with joey running up to the nurse's station and like not being able to say anything and just grabbing the uh, lunch tray and just starting to bang on everything and they're all like screaming out the window trying to wake him up and i just was like i was just really overcome with just how like they're just trying so hard and there's no adults there to help them and it's just like like i know it's not necessarily a kid's movie but that's how it feels when you're dealing with stuff a lot of the times as a kid and I'm just like, I would have eaten this up if I'd seen it earlier. Mm -hmm. Well said. But just like that kind of stuff just like really gets you like a lot of slasher movies. And I don't feel this way when watch them. When, so I think I have a hard time with a lot of slashers. Sometimes I'm not rooting for the killer. Mm. You know, a lot of people go into them that way. But I, that's just not like I like like Halloween, for example. I like Lori and her friends. I don't want to see them die. It's just but, you know, I'm also a horror fan. So it's just like, well, the more it hurts, the more I like it. So this one being that way, it's just like, I don't want any of these kids to go. And because of caring that much, it's just like, yeah, this is the one that really sucks me in. Like I'm really 
into their plight, the stuff that's happening to them. Like I'm rooting for them harder than harder than I do characters in a lot of movies, honestly. Nice. Maybe even I would say it even has a little bit of a like a Stephen King quality in that regard. I would agree. Yep. You just like it or whatever, that kind of stuff. And it's just like, God, like I just I feel for them so much. So it's like, yeah. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, I think, with that. Like and I, I root for Nancy in the first movie and like definitely New Nightmare. And I even like Alice and some of their friends in the fourth and fifth movies, but it's like, it's not the same, right? You know, it's not it's not there as deep as with this movie where they are just they are so like because Doctor Sims is such a shit. Oh my she god, is, <laughs> she's terrible. She's a racist. She thinks like the evil psychiatrist from Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street is like a, <laughs> a, as a role model. Yep, as just like she's a terrible doctor. She's proposed her hypothesis, and instead of like a good medical person, where you're like, okay, you try to prove that wrong a little bit. No, she's like, no, I'm just gonna stick with this, and I'm just gonna prove myself right by deciding I'm right. It's like she sucks, and she's in charge of them, and like everyone's failing them except for Nancy and Doctor Gordon, and even he has to be pulled you know, to the right side by her. So mm -hmm. Sims always reminded me of that kind of old school parent type figure. The, you know, kids should just shut up and not be seen and sit down. Yeah. And that, that's her entire approach to dealing with them. Y'all just <laughs> need to shut up, get some sleep. <laughs> You'll be fine in the morning. Go away. <laughs> right. Like even Kristen's mom has a little more depth to her, I think, because at least it's it's not like she has a problem with Kristen. It's just that she's like, I want this other thing. So can you leave me alone for like three hours? Which I, I love. I love the redo of the opening during the climax. Yes. When Freddie is the guy she brings home. Yeah. That one always hurt me a little bit because like the dream version of her mom is a little bit more understanding than her actual mom. So it's almost like that's another way Freddie's fucking with her. <laughs> but then after he cuts her head off, she's like, you do this every time. I can never bring a man home. And, and she's yeah. like, oh, God. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's the worst part of this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting in reading the Craven-Wagner draft and then looking at the finished film, touching on, on what you just mentioned, the original draft was very much Nancy's movie. The kids are in it but they have less screen time and Nancy's in it from the beginning. The movie opens with Nancy on the hunt for her father and then everything else that happens is kind of incidental from there. So one thing that Russell and Darabont did that was a very great choice was shifting the focus to those kids and Darabont and, and Russell have a pretty good sense of characterization. So they feel in between the writing and the actors who are terrific, the kids, they just have a lot of nuance to them are much more fun than I think protagonists in a lot of other horror films from around this time. So that ends up being a very good change. And another one is the original script had another setting in conjunction with the institution where there was the, um, it, basically it was the, the home in which Freddie was born. And we'll probably talk about it more as we go. Cause it, it factors into it's their version of how they defeat Freddie in this film. But so there was kind of this other main location, whereas this film transplants everything to the institution. And the byproduct of that is it does such a great job at amplifying the, the feeling of claustrophobia by focusing so much on this setting and so much on these characters being in isolation and just doing great lighting choices throughout it. Like all the lighting is almost always from an external source. And it, even in non-dream sequences, it's very noirish lighting where it's an extra where you can see 
the railings, you know, the iron rot gates or the wire mesh on the windows being cast. So there's this pervasive feeling of these kids reminding you how trapped and how isolated they are, which further adds to the terror. So those are two decisions that Darabont and Russell made that worked very, very well. Yeah. What's interesting to me about that and the kids in this is, like Haley said, they're more empathetic and interesting than than any, pretty much any of the characters. Well, except for the lead protagonist in two, I would say, than the kids in the other films who are a bit, I mean, they're, they're fine, but they're a bit cardboard cutouts. Whereas these kids, you feel, well, there's a couple of things about them. One is they know what they're facing or they have a pretty good idea right up front. Like everybody knows who the boogeyman is and they want to stay awake right from go. Mm. And they're trying to work within the boundaries that they have to do that and are being prevented for that. So the, the adults are in some ways directly responsible for their trauma. Absolutely. But also the, the film itself focuses on the kids less than the previous movies. So like this movie, a lot of time, it's, it's probably, I don't know if it's 50, 50, I didn't time it or anything is focused on the doctors and Nancy Craig Wasson, who absolutely should have been played by Steve Gutenberg. And, <laughs> totally different looking feel there you know like it's in the in the first two movies there's no scene where there's just adults it's all you know from the kids perspective entirely in this one you get both perspectives you get the kids and the helplessness and despair that they feel but also you know the proactiveness of it but you also get the adults who are trying to well eventually trying to save them so it's it tackles it from kind of both angles where the the first two don't. The first two are very teen slasher movies, whereas this one feels almost more like a it's this isn't the right word, but I would say a conventional horror film than specifically a film in the slasher genre. And it's kind of one of the things I I liked about it. Like it's I mean I don't know. That's just no, I I see what you mean. How I feel. this feels like I said less slashery than than the first two. Yeah, it feels like a more complete picture in a way. Yeah, but it does a better job because it's it's not a mystery from the kids' angle. No, the first two movies it's a mystery as to what's going on from the kids' angle. It's the kids trying to figure out what this is. In this, it's the kids trying to get the adults to listen to what they have already figured out. So why they're they're both powerless and empowered at the same time. And I thought that lent the movie a lot of nuance that the first two. Which were really have different goals. But the other big difference for me in this one was that religion was the cure. Yes. Instead of being completely useless like in the first one. <sighs> when I say it's it's more conventional, that's part of what I mean. Is that religion in horror movies is usually how you beat the big baddie. And in the first one, it's like, yeah, have fun with that crucifix. It doesn't do anything. In this one, <sighs> it's much more in line with you know, what you would normally do in a horror film. Yeah, it's funny because we talked when we talked about Freddy's Revenge, the second one, that the fan perception, the reputation it has from some corners of the fandom is, well, that's the movie that, quote unquote, broke the rules of how Freddy works and which this movie kind of puts things back closer to the original. And we talked in our discussion about whether or not that's accurate. But what I think is interesting about this movie is from a thematic standpoint, it does something thematically that is very counter to the original Elm Street. Because like I mentioned when we talked about the first Elm Street, for me, when I watch that first Nightmare on Elm Street, it feels like a shockingly personal movie, particularly when you look at the elements of Wes Craven's life. And it feels very much like an angry rebuttal to a lot of his upbringing with his staunch religious upbringing and him confronting, you know, obviously in horror, we mentioned a 
lot of times it's right about what what scares you and the things you're afraid of and things that scared you as a kid, which that movie very much does. But it's very, very much one of the elements is the futility of religion in that film, because there's very frequent Judeo-Christian iconography in that film. And it's all useless. It's people rely on it to save them and it never does. So what was it? And so when you see this film and they literally have to go to a church and fill a Jim Bean flask full of holy water and steal a crucifix <laughs> to do an exorcism, it's like, I imagine this wasn't in the Craven draft. And indeed it wasn't. Nope, nope. <laughs> so I'm just going to read this real quick. This is how the original script opens. There's a little bit of gore here. So just uh, heads up for anyone listening. Screen black. Camera pans down until a white dome rises into frame. A woman's pregnant belly. Next moment, a tiny fetal hand tipped with nascent steel claws jabs out of the belly and rips down, splitting the woman asunder. We hear the ungodly shriek and see the infant Freddy, glistening and dripping blood and placental goo, rear into frame, glaring directly into camera with blazing eyes and fierce teeth. And we zoom back with great speed through the room, out a window, exterior, zoom continuing, revealing as it pulls back a small ranch-style house, alone in dark woods. Camera pulls up like a rocket, this is all caps, revealing <laughs> the planet. Then we plunge to black with a terrific shriek of music. Begin main titles. Holy crap! That's the pre-credits bit. <sighs> so, I, I, I read that for two reasons. One is, it's like a Sam Raimi movie condensed into like 30 seconds <laughs> or something, where it feels like this... this bonkers camera angle where, where it mentions that it goes into orbit like right off the back it sounds like the fourth one <laughs> yeah or men in black so all that stuff i mentioned when i mentioned the ending of this movie gets wild we we get wild at the end of this movie <laughs> in the original draft but specifically it mentions freddie's birth and the shot of this house the ranch style house it mentions is a major major factor in the craven wagner draft it's the house where freddie's born it's not in springwood I don't know if they said specifically where it is. Probably California. <laughs> Probably California, based on the place, license plates in Nightmare 2. <laughs> in the original draft, the kids are not Elm Street kids. This house is basically, because it's where Freddy was born, it's basically just kind of this evil epicenter of his dream self, and it's this literal doorway into the dream dimension, basically. So what happens is there is a string of suicides in this town. And the reason there are suicides is there are kids who are nascent dream warriors, but their abilities haven't activated and they find themselves unconsciously drawn to this house where Freddie is using the dream connection to pull them to this house. And as they get within the vicinity of the house, he's able to get into their dreams and kill them. And, but now everyone chalks it up as suicide. So it's basically this rash of mass suicides that occur in the proximity of the zip code of this house. And the kids who are in the institution aren't Elm Street kids. They're kids who were drawn to this location, but managed to fight off enough that they aren't killed. And so they're not actually cognizant of Freddy Krueger, and they don't actually see him in their nightmares, but they're aware that when they dream, something awful is trying to get them. So it's much more nebulous. It's Nancy who's able to tie that specifically back to Freddy Krueger. Huh. Huh. So that's how it originally operates. And so then for the finale, instead of an exorcism, it's according to John Saxon's character, who again spent the intervening years, is they have to burn the house down. The house is basically this epicenter 
of him. So you have to destroy the house and that will break the connection and it will destroy, you know, what's left of Freddy. And Jake, Jake, you would hate this script because there is a <laughs> lot more blurring of reality and dreams like there was like, even more so than the first one. So they're burning it down in both the dreams and in reality. And then there's a whole sequence after that, which, which I'll get into later. But so, yeah, it's interesting that they by taking this house out of it, because they go to this house repeatedly in the original script, like it's where they keep getting drawn to in their nightmares or they're physically trying to go there to investigate or to burn it down. Elements of that are still in this because they keep going to the they Elm switch house. it to the Elm Street house. Yes. Yeah. So they take that basic idea, but they transplant it. So that's another interesting variation that Russell and Darabont did. Worth noting, they think they said they had like six days to do a rewrite on this. Damn. So it's interesting the amount of choices and pivots they had to make in a short span of time. And so it's interesting, again, if, if folks are a fan of the series and you haven't read this draft, it's not hard to find. I would absolutely recommend it because it is interesting seeing, A, what Craven and Wagner were going for, but B, like some of the things and how they were repurposed into the finished film. It's, it's pretty interesting how Russell and Darabont approached it. That's fun. I'll have to read that. Yeah. Like the kids were definitively more empowered in that one than they were in the final draft, too. If they're burning it down in the dreams and everything, because in this, they, they just kind of keep Freddie busy while the, the adults save the day. In that one, it sounds like it's a combination. Yeah, the Dream Warriors powers, it, it comes in, like I said, the kids are less developed in the script. The Dream Warriors ability comes in later. But when it, so basically they find out about their Dream Warriors abilities right before they go take the fight to Freddie. So Kristen, the Patricia Arquette's character, her ability is discovered early. And what's interesting is, I'll mention one other thing in terms of a callback to the original. So her dream ability, as it is in this movie, is she can pull people into her dream worlds. But the way it's unveiled is a callback to the first movie. They do a sleep study on her. And it's Nancy and Dr. Gordon. Is there a cat poster? There's no cute kitten poster. Which we <laughs> talked about with the, the kitten in the Hawaiian shirt right in the, the trolley car. But no, they do a call. They do a sleep study on her. And Dr. Gordon says... I got to step out and get a cup of coffee. And when he steps out, the meters start running nuts and Kristen just vanishes because her ability kicks in. And when the doctor comes back, she's apparated again and she's back in the room. But Nancy's like, I swear she, she, she was gone. She wasn't here. Neat. So again, it's an interesting callback to the first film. And so when Kristen kind of summons everybody into the dream world and their powers are unveiled, they're immediately like, yeah, let's go take the fight to Freddy. And so they're much more, like rah-rah about it and then it instantly goes to hell because then because <laughs> they're not trained they might have these powers but they don't know what the hell they're up for <laughs> gotta tell you as a lucid dreamer i don't think i'm fighting anything in my dreams it's more like come on man what is your brain about here <laughs> i've lucid dreamed twice just twice i remember and the first time it ended with me going wait this is a dream what grab a wooden spoon whack myself in the head oh shit i'm dreaming and then i woke up you know that was not actually you know, <laughs> I am not a dream warrior. All right? <laughs> I am a almost 100%. I always know when I'm dreaming, but it's not like, you know, I can control them to that degree or anything like that. But it was a fun element thinking of, you know, knowing that and watching this film. Like, hey, I give myself a mohawk. Well, that's the thing. Like, it seems like just from watching, it doesn't seem like Kristen is aware she's dreaming, even when she's in Nancy's house in the dream in the early part of the movie. Like, Nancy kind of has to bring her to that realization after she gets pulled in like it just seems like because that kind of dizzy element you have when you're dreaming like when we dream that seems to be kind of there for her it's like not really 
you know, like she's just accepting what happens as it's happening rather than like, wait a second, I'm dreaming. Um, because there is a point where they do kind of wake up when they realize that. Yeah, the w- one of the elements of the, the movie that really appealed to me was the whole element of the kids, you know, like Jake mentioned, that they, they have some semblance of self-defense, even if it's not particularly effective, way less effective even. I'll read some segments of the original script later. It, it's rough, some of the things that happen in the original script. But to the point that, like, when I was watching this, so I'd mentioned that I, I worked up the nerve to look at the box art for this as a kid. So this was one of the few horror films I was interested in seeing. So I'd mentioned in a, in a previous recording that I had a story about seeing this one as a kid. I was, not long after I saw the VHS box art for it, I was at my grandparents. Now, we've mentioned in previous episodes that we've had the term on our podcast before of Fraggle Rock money, which is the term <laughs> when, when you're a kid and you have someone, a friend who has access to Fraggle Rock, which means you know they're rich because if you're growing up... It's not that rich! Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. It was absolutely the class demarcation. Because if you had Fraggle Rock, you had HBO, which meant your family was rich. Uh, and no. creamy Caesar dressing, as we determined. My family wasn't okay. And I creamy, was a creamy Italian dressing. Yeah. I was a teenage pregnancy. Watch them My fight. My family Watch wasn't rich. They made bad choices. <laughs> <laughs> so, but not bad financial ones. Yes, yes, they did. That's why we had HBO. <laughs> so my family we just had an antenna yeah same we had nothing but my grandparents had hbo and i was always jealous of my cousins because my cousins had a much better relationship with my grandparents so they were over there all the time they had unfettered access to fraggle rock imagine and i was so jealous i can't the holy grail as a kid man it was good it was good. Nick, and nick just took her for granted <laughs> I was with my parents pretty much like my parents very rarely ever went anywhere. But one time my parents went out of town for something and it must, I must've been something with my brother. Cause he wasn't there either. They left me with my grandparents who had HBO and I looked in TV guide and dream warriors was playing. So I shot my shot when my grandmother <laughs> said, what would you like to watch on television? I said, oh, can we, can we watch dream warriors? And it's on at like eight o'clock or whatever. She said, are you sure your parents let you watch that? I, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so we sat down to watch Dream Warriors and started at the beginning. And my grandmother is watching me just progressively force myself further and further into the mattress <laughs> as I'm getting more and more t- and pulling the blankets up higher and higher. And But I wouldn't look away. And she goes, are you sure your mother lets you watch these movies? Yes, yes, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so I got as far as the Wizard Master dream sequence. Yes. So when the chair comes after him, that's pretty and the kid says, "I am the Wizard Master," and he hits his fist and he jumps up and he's got the cape and he shoots you know magic missile essentially and blows the chair up. And I about leapt up because I was like, "Oh my, they're saved." This kid has magic again. I was the '80s fantasy kid, and not always. It's a ranged attack. You're, you're grand. You can just stand back, and so he's shooting Freddy, and I was cheering next to my grandmother. I was so and excited. Then he and then he just, and then he just runs at him, and he's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and Freddy said. Sorry, kid, I don't believe in fairy tales. Stabs him in the abdomen, and I ran out of the room. <laughs> I lost my shit completely. Oh, God. <laughs> because I thought they 
had a chance. Oh my god, it's amazing. You know, your grandma knew what the hell she was doing. All right, she knew for a fact. There is no way your parents let you watch that. But you know what? Yeah. You wanted it. You get what you get. <laughs> Grandma's version of making you smoke a carton of cigarettes. <laughs> I mean, she let you get through the whole scene with Joey and the nurse. So. Oh yeah, yeah, she did. <laughs> Wait, Which you watched that scene with your grandma? I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh, that's that's got to top the list of uncomfortable scenes to watch with a parent or grandparent. Yeah, it's funny. It was it was a scene with Haley was talking about Dr. Sims earlier. It's funny. The nurse was kind of the most upsetting part for me watching it this time. Not that it was when the nurse first appears and she's got the cart of towels and towels get knocked off and fall on the ground. And she picks them up and puts them right back on. I'm a borderline germaphobe. I was like, those are not clean towels. Please do not put them. This is a hospital. <laughs> I was so upset when they put the dirty towels back on top. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to read one more bit from the original script. Speaking of the Wizard Master sequence. Because again, it was like, why do you just run at him? And Chuck Russell and Darabont mentioned, they're like, yeah, we ran out of, you know, there was no budget. So we were like, I, he just runs at him, gets stabbed, whatever. Yeah, it's weak. But I was curious how it was originally written. Here's how that whole sequence is originally written. Now, the kid's name in the original script was Laredo. So when I say the name Laredo, it's that same character. So Freddy has done something at this point. So here's the initial direction. Laredo laughs and screams at him. Laredo. You didn't think I'd fall for that, did you, Kruger? More to himself, amused. Shape changing. I can get into that. Then realizing, I bet I can get into that. And this is all underlined. And with that, Laredo changes shape into a ferocious gargoyle of a thing. Ten feet high with long fangs and yellow cat eyes. Nice. Freddy jumps back in shock as the thing hisses and strikes at him. And then, just as suddenly, Freddy changes into a ragged-ass black crow. It says ragged-ass black crow. <laughs> <laughs> that flaps away, easy out of reach, circling the monster and pecking at his eyes. The Laredo gargoyle snaps suddenly into the shape of a huge red net swinging through the air, swooping around the Freddy Crow and capturing it easily. But no sooner does this happen than the Freddy Crow changes shape into a rushing blob of goo that easily squishes out between the interstices of the net, gathers on the floor, and reforms right back into Freddy, who ducks behind a doorway, just as the net returns to the shape of Laredo, who looks around cockily for Freddy. Laredo. Guess that showed him. Next second, Freddy roars out of the doorway with a gas-powered post-hole digger, <laughs> driving the giant screw straight into the back of Laredo. The whirling bit drills straight through the startled boy, spinning out of his chest. Freddy, screw you! <laughs> Laredo twists into a screaming cloud of bloody vapor, human-shaped, human screaming, shooting right down the corridor and into... And then it transfers to the next scene with Nancy and the doctor as they see the ghost of a screaming Laredo fly past them into oblivion. Wow. So I mentioned that for two reasons. One is you can see kind of the original budgetary ambitions. Two, it's the scene from Total Recall. I was going to say, it's Benny. It's Benny from Total Recall. So, so I, Benny, I so screw you. you. <laughs> so... <laughs> there are portions of the script that shocked and horrified me. This one, I laughed so hard because <laughs> all I could see is Schwarzenegger in Total Recall. So, oh my god, it makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, that's a little different in the finished film. 
Just, just a little. Just a little. Just a little bit. <laughs> oh goodness. I don't even know what to say to that. I don't I'm not I'm not a fan of that approach. I guess I'll I'll say um God, good God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The kid deaths in it are are like fundamentally they're the same people die in kind of similar circumstances, but the deaths are much more gruesome. It, it's very splatterpunk at the finale. Well, that I mean that yeah that that's definitely like very different in this. You, you kind of wonder what the process. Like, what is all this? I don't know. I just have him run at him. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. So that that explains how that was originally supposed to go. He should have at least summoned a mace. And I think him slashing them in this stays true to the way it's been as at this point, the first, second and third movies, because he's his claw is his main weapon. Because mm. when you start to get the oh, really over the top deaths with five and six. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's just like that's the point where the series starts to kind of lose me a bit is when it just gets a bit overcomplicated with how he's killing them and such. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't mind the elaborate dreams. Like, that's part of the reason it's, it's I love this franchise so much is that the dream stuff makes it so it's so imaginative. But then when he starts like, I don't know, like the motorcycle stuff and like the um I can't even remember perfectly the the comic book stuff and the Nintendo stuff it starts to get to feel a little like i don't know like some of the later i mean i guess this is just something that happens entropy wise with um slasher stuff it's just like you know it happens friday 13th even with non-slasher stuff it happens with saw just everything has to get more complicated the further along they go and i, I don't know if that's like a script demand thing. They keep trying to up the ante. Right, yeah. right. But it, it ends up making it feel less personal. Mm -hmm. Like that's, I like that they changed it from being the house where Freddie was born to Nancy's house because it makes it feel more personal. It makes it feel more, feel more time. There's a scene in New Nightmare that really like it make the through line of that house, you know, in the series. I know it's not that way in four, five and six, but like for the first three movies and then New Nightmare, like that house is just so like it is the Elm Street house. It, yeah. It's Nancy's house, but it is it's kind of a character in its own way in this series. It's kind of interesting. In fact, the fact that it is Nancy's house, there's no reason it needs to be Nancy's house because Kruger himself has no real root there other than it's the first place he's defeated. It's his toughest villain. Nancy's the first one who beat him in the first one. Yeah. Nancy, to some degree, is the one who beats him in the third one. You know, it's almost like while he's dragging these children into their nightmare, he can't escape his own nightmare, which is that house where he almost lost it all. He's essentially haunting it in the second one. Exactly. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, and like the thing is, he is, I know you were talking earlier about like the John Saxon possible script where it was going to be like, well, Freddie was wrong and that would be why he's coming back. But like, I feel like some of that's just certain like kind of uh, American ghost story stuff we've kind of like accepted, but really it, it says more about his character. Like you got all this boiler room imagery whenever there's a dream stuff. It's like he is hung up on when he's defeated. Mm -hmm. He's hung up on the points in life or in his ghost time where he's screwed up and that's the boiler room and Nancy's house. Like he can't let things go. Yep. And, and the, the parents who, who set him on fire even. Right. Right. It, it's fitting that motif. You're right. It's less that it's revenge and more of, I can't believe I let you guys get me. Yeah. 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 And to be honest, if somebody hit me with a sledgehammer, I would probably have been <laughs> letting it go too. <laughs> I mean, and it's that personal element. Like 
I sometimes have really weird interpretations of stuff from certain movies, and this is definitely one of them. The religious stuff, to me, also sticks with that personal element because I can't imagine that Fred Krueger had a very good relationship with his mother. No. And the fact that she had become a nun, I feel like that's less about like religion saves it more because it is this tie to that human element of him that is this tie to his mother. And that's why the exorcism works at the end. Mm. I like that more than it's just religion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's just how I see it. That fits more in the mythology looking at it like that way. I mean, cause she's really the, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but aside from him, she's the only like ghost ghost who breaches the real world. Like all the children ghosts we see in dream sequences, but she is walking the graveyard, walking the grounds of the hospital. Yep. So there, she's clearly important in his retrospect too, because if he's crossed over then and she's crossed over, there's just this tie there. I'm just going to repeat myself past this point, but like, yeah. So it just feels like there is some power to her. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like we mentioned, looking at the second movie, which which does essentially function as as a haunted house story in the way it approaches Freddy. And then you get to this movie, and it, it wasn't until the second time I watched it, it occurred to me. I was like, oh yeah, this has has a ghost element to it, you know, with his mother and that whole and, and her appearances to it. Which so it's I just like that she keeps disappearing like Batman on him. <laughs> I was wondering. I was like, so Jake is either going to hate this because it's the the blurring the rules mechanic, or he's going to like it because it's she's just woo and you know, <laughs> like Commissioner Gordon turn around and what do you think? And poof, you know. Don't, I am not going that far down the rules road here. We, you know, we talk about one paranormal activity film, and I'm not on team rules completely. <laughs> just for one episode. It's too late. No, nope, nope, you're convert. We're, we're keeping you. But also, I wonder if technically there are ghosts in the other ones because they don't they see the kids. You know what? You're right. When they're singing the jump rope song. Yeah. They're in the opening after Tina's dream. They're there. And then they're obviously in, in the final shot. I don't mean just in this, but in the first two, they run into them. Well, that's them in the first one. In the yeah. first one, they appear after the Tina dream and at the end. In the second one, they don't appear, but the rhyme appears. Jesse sees his sister jumping rope doing okay. the, the rhyme. And then they're obviously in the opening of this one at the Elm Street house. But they're not the only potential ghosts either. Like in the very first dream we see with Kristen, she runs into that room with all of the kids who are hung yeah. uh, from the ceiling. You know, that's, that's it's like it's almost like a, a collection. Oh, it totally is. Yeah. Like, like these are the kids he's claimed between the first movie and then. Right, right, because he's got this whole thing with like when he pulls open his shirt and he's like the souls of the children give me strength. But also, like, there's this constant imagery in different dream sequences of, like, you know, it's a normal floor and walls at first, but then, like, it kind of morphs into, like, being ashes and bones and skulls. Mm -hmm. Like, it's the lair of a beast. Yes. On on that note, the it's funny because his ashes come up in the finale of the original script. There's a bit where they burn him in the dream world, and then Kirsten actually takes some of Freddy's ashes and needs to utilize them for something else that comes after that. But one other thing on, on religious imagery that, that that's kind of fun from the original script was the, the original script had an element with Kirsten and her family. Talked a bit about her mother earlier. Her, her parents were in it a bit more. You see her dad as well in, in the original. Kirsten, keep saying Kirsten. Kirsten is not in the institution for very long in the original script. She's only there for like a day. And Kristen's mother tells Nancy dismissively at one point, I'm going to send my daughter to one of those four star Catholic schools and that's going to fix everything. I, you know, <laughs> what you do, do is a bunch of, you know, quack nonsense. So there's a sequence with Kristen at school 
and she has a dream. And in the dream, she's in bed, and all of a sudden she looks at her hands, and they develop stigmata. Mm. And her arms go out and get locked rigidly as if she's been crucified, but there's no cross. And then she lifts up, floats out the window, and then floats like across the campus and down the hall of the school, locked in this Christ crucified pose. But again, a very striking religious image that Craven or Wagner went back to for the original. You know, what's fun with that is that Kristen is played by Patricia Arquette, who would later go on to uh, star in Stigmata. She was! I totally forgot! Yes! yes she was. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> uh, See, what I'm really interested in is Jennifer Rubin was in Bad Dreams by yes. Andrew Fleming, which came out right after this, which I haven't seen, but my Blu-ray's coming. She so was I'm also in Screamers. Love Screamers, not hashtag Screamers. screamers. <laughs> the Peter Weller Screamers? Peter Weller. <laughs> okay. Well, something else she was in was the Chris Isaac music video for Somebody's Crying. It's one of my favorite songs, but it's, it's certainly my favorite. Terrifying. Song. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a good song, but yeah, she's in that. <laughs> Somebody else, and you know, Chris Isaac had a TV show for a while, the Chris Isaac show. A couple of people on that were... Uh, like Lisa Loeb and Sophie B. Hawkins, who also happened to be on Community. Uh, no. So no, that's our that's one of our two Community. That's way this. too much of a stretch, man. man. You would have been horrible to play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. This is <laughs> like no. Kevin Bacon's not in this movie. It doesn't count. You're like Taryn was in a music video, and the songwriter happened to be connected to. Like you, you're getting you're leaving movies for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll get to the other one, but do you really think I'm going to pass up a connection that goes through 90s rock? <laughs> you? No. <laughs> yeah. Chris Isaac has acting cred. He was in uh, Fire Walk with me. If, if he had gone through that, I might have forgiven it. Well, the Chris Isaac show, I used to like the Chris Isaac show because it had people like Lisa Loeb and Sophie B. Hawkins. <laughs> Lisa Loeb, of course, plays uh, Keith David's ex-lover in the season six episode. And Sophie B. Hawkins plays Sophie B. Hawkins in the Sophie B. Hawkins dance episode. So, all right. Well, so the other community connection, there's no, there's no like direct one, but it's through Patricia Arquette. Because Patricia Arquette was on Medium for seven seasons. And that was a show I didn't care for. But everybody who was on Medium was also on Community. <laughs> Toby Hale, Kevin Corrigan, Mike Haggerty, Mate Schwartz, James O'Connor, John O'Brien, Mark Jablon. There hey! were 54 connections there. Those are all actors. So, Good job. <laughs> Lisa Loeb is an actress. Was she on Community? Yeah, but she's on a lot of other stuff. She was, she was a, before she was uh, famous as a musician, she was on TV and movies. So, yeah, go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that we've gotten to a point where Nick won't accept a Community connection unless people were in both movies. But the problem is, is we keep doing 80s horror, and Community came out in 2009. <laughs> so you know it makes my life a really grand okay <laughs> so now i want to watch the uh those two episodes of community again i love those episodes while we're on the subject of tv i'll just go ahead and mention friend of the pod steve would go ballistic if i didn't mention the craig wasson who plays dr neil gordon was also hr in episode 18 of season four of d space nine hard time which is the episode that completely cements that anytime O'Brien leaves the station, things go horribly, horribly wrong. That's the episode with O'Brien in the mind prison, but that's a big episode for Steve, so I had to mention that. Should Steve Gutenberg have also played that role? 
It's not much of a part. But <laughs> Craig Lawson was also the lead in Ghost Story, which is one of those uh, horror movies that scarred me as a child. Yeah. And Body Double, which I think is the only other main role I'd seen him in, which was before this, which blew my mind. I thought that was early 90s, but no, it was 84. It has a 90s movie poster. Oh. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Haley, we've kept you late, and so before we completely light into each other over TV minutia, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> thank the, you! Uh, the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. Thank you. Well, this was wonderful. Do you have anything coming up you'd like to plug? Sure. I've got a story coming up in the uh, Perpetual Motion Machine Press anthology Lost Contact. The story is Life Begins at Injection, and it's a prequel story to my novel Queen of Teeth that came out uh, earlier this year. And I think I'm not sure if it's this year or next year. I think it's this year. I have a story coming out in the new uh, Vastarian. Um, I think that's everything for this year we're getting towards okay. the very end of the year so it's i mean if there's any more surprises I, i'll get to be surprised too um then i'll have some books <laughs> coming out next year but i don't have release dates yet okay well on that note this episode should be coming out early december ish so as we're approaching the christmas season i would advise everyone to head over to dailysciencefiction.com and check out the short story last on santa's list oh yeah that was good which is absolutely wonderful that was good <laughs> Do it before Christmas because otherwise it's going to depress you because <laughs> Daily Science Fiction was evil in late 2019 and released the published that on Christmas Day. Nice. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's amazing. See, that's how you do it right. <laughs> it, it was, but people weren't expecting that. They were like, oh, cool, Christmas story on Christmas Day. And it's just like, oh, oh. And like, I had so many messages from people being like, oh, I thought this nice thing was going to happen at the end or this would happen instead. And it's just like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm just like, look, I wrote that back in March. <laughs> You, you know, you say this all like you have this like like very polite response, but like in my head, I just hear you like quoting Warshak. You know, you think I'm stuck in here with you? <laughs> You're stuck in here with me. <laughs> I honestly didn't know what to say to any of those messages because I was like, "I'm sorry?" Question mark because I'm. <laughs> this was the intent. I just. I just didn't think they were going to publish it on Christmas morning. Like it was so like I I oh, I got onto perfect. Twitter and I saw it was tagged from Daily Science Fiction. I'm just like, really? <laughs> you said that was 2019. Yeah. Oh, I should have read it that day. That was the day the Sixers beat the Bucks on Christmas Day. I was bulletproof that day. <laughs> <laughs> That's your fondest Christmas memory. <laughs> Oh my god. Knowing that my mom and my wife don't listen to this? Yes. <laughs> oh. oh. And before we get off, I'm just gonna show off my Kruger claw. Nice! <laughs> that's the best twelve dollars I ever spent. That's awesome. Oh, that's fabulous. Hells yeah. Hells yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Haley, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you. And we'd love to have you back for Life Force, which we're absolutely inevitably going to do. Going to happen. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh, I'm 
happy to defend that movie because I, when I posted on Twitter, I was just like, oh, I'm going to get reamed for this. People are going to be like, you have no taste, Haley Piper. Hey. But I was like, no, it was a bunch of people were like ecstatic. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. No, that movie is so gloriously bad. I love the crap out of it. <laughs> uh, I'm always down for space vampires. I, I actually like, I genuinely, it's, it's hard to classify because I'm just like, yeah, some of this is bad, but like other parts are brilliant. And I'm just like, it's such a wonderful mess. And I just, I love it so much. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, that'd be great. I'm very much looking forward to doing it whenever we get to our Toby Hooper spotlight. You know, yeah, <laughs> we'd love to have you. And again, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Once again, big thanks to Haley Piper for coming on. It was such a delight to have her on. Absolutely. Thank you. That was, it was really, really wonderful. Uh, folks, if you're listening to this and you haven't read Haley's work, please do check it out. It's worthy time. Definitely go check out the Christmas story we mentioned. Which read is it Christmas Day. Particularly <laughs> <laughs> on Christmas Day. But we've also mentioned in previous episodes, we really have a soft spot for Cosmic Horror here and yeah. really recommend the novella. The Worm and His Kings. It's one of the best cosmic horror stories I've read ever. So I, I really love Haley's work. So please definitely check that one out. But we kept Haley really late and I, I didn't want I didn't want to have to subject Haley to too much of our nonsense as we start to light into each other. Yeah, yeah dear listener, you might have noticed as soon as Nick and I started to bicker, Eric was like, well, too bad we to can't go. stay. <laughs> We're going to let the nice people out before we go down into this. <laughs> Haley got out before the sound of bottles breaking and tables flipping over. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> but I honestly, I there was very little I, I disliked about this movie. I it's it's a great movie. It's a very good movie. I, you know, I, I've mentioned that it felt more traditional horror than the first two. You know, less of a slasher movie, more of a monster movie to a degree, I guess. Or which isn't a complaint. It's just how it felt. But I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. It felt like evolving the franchise and trying to get away from some of the more tropey stuff that shows up in the first two. Well, actually the first two aren't even all that tropey to be honest, but it's there. The only other thing I guess got me was the burnt pig. Cause that was just gross as shit. That wow. was funny because it was a real pig. Oh, that doesn't make that better, but they, they roasted it. Then they let it spoil and then had a prop guy puppet it from beneath. And apparently the smell was just overwhelming and like stuck there for days. It was just awful. Well, it worked. I hated it. It was, I just, that turned my stomach in. You know what's funny about it is it made me think of a, a song, How Do You Sleep by the Stone Roses, which is like the first line is, I saw your severed head at a banquet for the dead and, you know, all this stuff, you know, it's on a silver platter and the apple in the course of the song goes from the person's head into their mouth, you know, and like the chorus actually play, it works for this film because the chorus is, how do you sleep? How do you last the night and keep the dogs at bay? How do you feel when you close your eyes and try to drift away? Does it feel any better? Does it mean any more when the angel of death comes knocking and banging at your door? Like, that could be for this. Side note to that song. I once, when I was courting my wife, I made a mix. And, you know, it was like songs to get excited by, you know, and I had a romantic one. And I put this on the romantic one because in my idiot brain, I never really thought about what the lyrics meant. It was more the tone of the song. Oh, my God. And she liked these mixes. She's like, what oh about this God. song? I'm like, that feels romantic. And she read some of the lyrics. And I'm like, oh. And to this day, the song still feels romantic to me. Not my wife. I wonder why. <laughs> I tried to play it at the wedding, and that got shot down faster. 
then then I'd say you got 90%, balls, son. ninety percent of my choices for our first dance got shot down without even me finishing the fucking title of the song. But that one I tried to slip in there. Nope. But I still feel like it. And any if any Stone Roses fans out there, you know, how do you sleep? It could be romantic if you don't think about what the lyrics are saying. Anyway, it, it's funny in terms of bits of this movie that that stuck with you growing up. I mean, aside from a, a lot the Wizard Master bit, which I talked about, seems like a lot of this movie stuck with all of us. Yeah, a lot yes, of this. yes. <laughs> but there's a scene. Well, well, I'll mention up front too. My kind of my one of my favorite things about it now, not my favorite scene, but my favorite a bit of dream imagery I love is early. It's when Kristen thinks she's out of the initial dream sequence, goes into the bathroom, and goes to turn the sink on, and the sink grabs her. The effect is well executed of the flanges on the knob turning into fingers, clutching yes. her. Then on the other one, the knives coming out, the steam building, and then the, the rods coming up and the copper piping looks like bones. Yeah. It's just the attention to detail. Again, a relatively simple thing, but it was like, oh, that's just a very striking image that I thought was was very well executed. Now, top to bottom, they worked really hard on the practical effects and the visual representations. It's just pretty as hell and you can really see the production value in almost every step of the way except where they obviously cut corners yeah it's ambitious as hell for the budget yes and in particular where it struck me the most is the kirsten dream sequence kind of i guess it's the second one it's right before the freddy snake shows up i love the snake and the snake's fun too the, the snake that <laughs> everyone <laughs> tries to say oh, oh it looked too phallic it was like there's no way there's an interview with Kevin. I mean, this comes up in the Never Sleep Again documentary, but it comes up also in the bonus features on the blue where Kevin Yeager's like, look, look, we, we discussed this. It was supposed to look like a penis. Then it got on set and everyone freaked out. And they, so they talk about how it's like, oh, it, 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 we got to cover its pinkish hue. I mean, it's like, oh, my God. So, so like, oh, my gosh, we can't believe this. Frank Hennon Lauder's like, come on, man, you're not even trying. Mediocre. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> here's how that sequence it is in the original script it's in a different sequence it occurs to nancy nancy's in bed and she's thinks she's being attacked by freddie and she's staying at neil's place at this point in the script and neil comes in shambles on the bed and she's like help me help me and he slaps her and then neil runs to the foot of the bed and this is how it describes he sidles backwards straddling her legs moving back to her feet and nancy watches in horror as neil's lower jaw dislocates and drops slowly towards the bedclothes his skin stretching grotesquely like taffy. Neil fastens his gaping mouth on Nancy's feet like an anaconda and slowly begins to envelop her legs, her hips, devouring her whole. Nancy screams helplessly as Neil slash the snake bumps up against her chin and we see that his face is transformed into that of Freddy. With only her head left to devour, he looks at her and laughs. Freddy, now give Freddy a little head, hmm? <laughs> so it was a phallic joke in the, before russell and darabont were even involved so it was reworked no let's make it a literal dick and then try and say <laughs> oh it came on set and it looked it looked too bad when it was actually in the fight I was like, oh come on but the where the the budgetary ambition or the ambition of the movie beyond its budget really comes in is right before that just the shot when she's in the room and there's the tracking shot of you know an unseen thing which we find out is the snake moving under the carpet love it. and love then it. The, the camera and or it's docking. all one shot or docking and the camera tracks up around and you see the, you know, the wall, the plaster break apart and track alongside her. There's so much going on in the frame as far as so many practical effects going on at one time in a single shot. Yes. 
it's like, you know, Jesus, this is ambitious. And another element I like too that's amplified in that is I love the tying Freddy into this image that even when he's not screen, he's embodied as simply rot, that the house is derelict. Yep. Everything looks like it's falling apart. You know, that room is, you know, boards and plaster falling apart. The rotten pig. I've always, always liked the idea of Freddy being this kind of pervasive thing that comes into what should be, you know, a, a your dreams and part of your private self and is perverting that and corrupting it. So them visualizing that was something I really dug. It's interesting because that's something that actually started, I felt, in two, sort of. So like in the first one, Freddy is showing up in their dreams and the main twist there is while he can do some weird stuff with himself, he's mainly just trying to get them into the boiler room area. But that's it. It's just he's just trying to get them into his zone and do what he wants. Whereas the second one, there's this constant fire motif going on. There's everything. Flames keep popping up. Electronics keep overheating. Lightning bolts. Pool boiling. You know, just fire, fire, fire. And in this one, they switch it to rot. And I feel that continues, actually. I think that becomes more of a constant the farther you go on. Yeah, there was a bit more of that. I think we talked about that a little bit on Elm Street 1. Script had a little bit more of that with Freddy being embodied as objects. Yep. And Freddy himself is certainly a figure of physical rot, you know, with him cutting himself in the maggots and whatnot, pieces of him falling apart and whatnot. But they definitely externalize that more. And it's funny, like a lot of the stuff in the original script for this is kind of taking the very end of the first film where Freddy is the car, basically, you know, with the hood comes down and it's the sweater. And it's that idea that kind of comes more forward in, in kind of the original draft of the script of this, where Freddy is becoming objects, like the house we were talking about where he was born. There's several references to, like, Freddy is the house, basically, in that original script. But one thing about this movie that was very much defined as something I love of horror is a very specific scene in this that I remember from growing up, and it's the scene where they're at Joey's bedside after Joey's gone into a coma. And they say, oh, come out, Joey. And all of a sudden you see across his chest, the little slash marks come across. And you say, well, come and get him, bitch, or whatever the, the, the scrawl is. A, that was a creepy as fuck image as a kid. Yep. yep. But it was the score in that segment. There's score at the beginning, and it increases a little bit where there's that, but there's no, like, silence. And then when the cuts appear, there's a big musical sting. Dur, dur, dur. It's a relatively consistently written piece of synth throughout that sequence. So it basically just stays level. So it's someone sitting there score, the slashes start occurring. Someone reacts horrified shot of it. So like you talked about before, normally with scares that a lot of times there's a big music cue or something, or you, you would have those big music stings as a kid. And you know, it would scare you and you do like me and you jump up and run out of the goddamn room. But in this one, that was such a musical sting. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah I yeah. certainly haven't seen James Wan's entire repertoire. Yeah. And that was just a bugger. Yeah, I know. I got to admit, I'm trolling. But that was when I thought, saw it. It was that was a really defining moment of what I like about horror. I mean, it scared the shit out of me, but it was it was probably the first subtly or you know, more subduedly creepy. You know, no one like reaches out and slashes. It's just little cuts appearing. And it's more a, a quietly horrifying moment with an even score throughout it. And it's like that really kind of defined a lot of the kind of horror I'm I'm drawn to. So I think that was a really, really major moment for for me growing up, you know, aside from, you know, a wizard kid getting stabbed to death. That's yeah, I could I could definitely see that. And this this movie has a lot of moments, I would say, in that vein that are more what I like about horror than the previous films. 
and more that what interests me. So if I had been more open to it, this might have been the film that kind of started me on my horror journey much earlier than I actually uh, started on it. Yeah, I honestly really enjoyed this film. I think it might be I, I, I'm still holding off an official opinion till we get to the end, but it might be my favorite of them all. I, I like the use of practical effects. I like Freddy coming into his own. I, I like so much about this film. It's just a lot of fun. Hell, it's got fucking Lawrence Fishburne in it, for Christ's sake. I mean, how yes. can you go wrong with a movie that has Lawrence Fishburne in it? Who has more to do than I remembered from growing up. Yes. Like, I, I remembered it. I was like, oh, isn't he in that? He's only got like one or two lines. No, he's in it a decent amount. You know, I wish he was in it more because he's terrific. And, and Max is a great character. So this one of the credits is Larry Fishburne. Yep. And he is in the original draft, too. But he has he has more to do slightly in, in the finished film. But yeah. And if you don't get enough of them here, you can always go watch them in Event Horizon. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I just bought the Criterion edition of Deep Cover. And I meant to break that open before uh, we recorded this, but I ran out of time. That's funny. I listened to, to Deep Cover the song today. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's still one of my all-time favorite rap songs. I also, I just thought it was interesting that this movie had nudity in it. Because the first, well, I guess he got a, you know, man butt in the first, in the second one. But mm-hmm. I, I wonder if this is the only slasher where you get male nudity before female nudity. Not this particular film, but the, the, the series? series. The series. Uh... Well, certainly the first one off the top of my head. Because you got the coach's butt in number two. There's nothing in number one. Yeah. Well, and there's Jesse, too. Jesse has his pants pulled down on the uh, the baseball field. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it might be. I, we'll have to look into that. I'm curious about that. What I will say... It's not usually a hallmark of slasher films from the 80s. No. Since you mentioned that, the sequence where the, the nurse is topless. So, the way it plays out in the finished film is nurse comes in, kisses him, and... Then <laughs> Freddy has, I love this, where it turns into Freddy having tongues as a breath weapon. Yep. And just go, Bruh! Yep. And, and a tongue comes out and, and lashes Joey. <laughs> and originally there was a whole bit where it was, the, the actress had Freddy Krueger makeup and had like a Freddy Krueger top. And they were like, oh, it didn't look great. And I was like, man, I wish you had gone with that. I would have loved that image. But it's a lot of things they, they cut out, I was like, oh, I wish you had gone with that choice. It would have been so much more interesting. So and then Joey is essentially held hostage for you know the rest of the film. Like I mentioned, he's, he's the part where they you know cut a message into him. The part I was just talking about. None of that is in the original, but the bed is. Here's how Joey's death occurs. So at this point, the Dream Warriors have gone into the house which they're trying to destroy, and they try and burn it. And originally nothing happens. And then they're like, okay, I guess we have to burn Freddy himself. They go into adjacent rooms. They get lured out and. Much like this film, Freddy lures them into different areas. But in the original written version, he embodies people they know more. Uh, like for the Laredo sequence we just mentioned, the Wizard Master. Originally, when he comes in, he appears as Laredo's little brother. And he's like, you let me die. You were, you've took a phone call and I drowned. And Laredo's like, it was, it was a wrong number. It only took a second. And he's like, a second's all it took to let me die, Laredo. You let me die. And he's like, oh, I know you're Freddy. That's what happens immediately before the bit I read. So it's much more Pennywise-ish in some ways with him appearing as people they know and taunting them. And in this case... Hey, it had a pretty good bathroom horror scene too. So, you know, there's some parallel. There is one that's pretty close to it where uh, there's a sequence where Nancy goes into the bathroom, turns on the faucet, and blood is coming out, stops the faucet, and then she hears a noise at the tub and she looks over at the tub and all of a sudden there's this squeal coming out and this mass of blood and hair is slowly coming out of the tub faucet. 
And as it gets pulled through are the screams of the kids along with it saying, help us, help us, help us. Wow. Well done. That's That's real close. Great visual. So here's Joey's death. So Joey goes into an adjacent room and sees not the nurse and sees a random girl who supposedly knows him and who he had a crush on. I forget some of the setup, but so she goes in and she says, so here's the line. It says she reveals her breasts, much like the finished film. Her line is, I know you want me, Joey. Take me. The bedroom door shuts. Joey doesn't notice it. They embrace in a kiss. Joey seems to loosen up, enjoying it. Close up. Her tongue enters his mouth, a tongue that continues to grow from her mouth, snaking deeply as he gags, and her arms clamp around him like iron. We now notice that she is wearing Freddy's hat. At this point, pretty much how it plays out in the finished film, just not the hat. Right? With the tongue? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next line. Her tongue snakes out his right eye, popping it from its socket, Ah! then arcs around and dives into his other eye. Teenage girl, you're such a good kisser, Joey. Ah! Joey falls backwards, clutching his empty eye sockets, screaming onto the four-poster bed, an ugly, sodden bed now graced with a bizarre red-green striped bedspread. Joey, somebody help me, please, God! The four posts become animate and grab Joey, each one grabbing him by one of his arms and legs. They pull him tautly so that he is now stretched in midair above the bed. Freddy's head thrusts out of the headboard. Freddy has become the bed as Joey's body stretches taut as a rubber band and then snaps in a spray of blood and shattered bones. Oh! Good lord. So that's Joey's death. We went over Laredo's death. Taryn instead goes into a room, sees her grandmother, and says, oh my gosh, grandmother. And then she has this exchange where the grandmother's like, you know, oh, oh, I missed you. Why did you abandon us? She's like, I'm sorry, grandmother. I had to leave you. Because again, the kids were unconsciously being drawn to this area for reasons they couldn't fathom because Freddie wanted to kill him. And then it would look like suicide. Grandmother tells her, come put your head in my lap. And so she goes, she puts her head in her grandmother's lap. And the grandmother's abdomen then opens up and her ribs are basically teeth. And she starts eating Taryn. Oh. And eats her as far as her foot, and at which point her foot is hanging out. And Freddy, it says, Freddy slash grandmother, and his quip is, The only problem with you, Taryn, is sometimes you're hard to stomach. Wow. Then with renewed vigor, Freddy pushes Taryn in like you'd help a sausage along into a grinder. When just a foot is left, an impatient Freddy whacks it off, tennis shoe and all, and throws it into the hall. I mention all these deaths because... Not only are they, like I said, there's no way they could have gotten away with this. Nope. They talk in Never Sleep Again about the motorcycle death that Haley mentioned and how they had to cut that down because the studio thought it was too explicit. There's no way. There's no way. Because there's a sequence after this where Nancy and the doctor run into a room and Freddy has just put what's left of the kids piled in there. It's just the pile of of Taryn. Oh my God. What's left of Laredo. And then like the, the snapped swinging carcass of Joey are just hanging there. He's like, I want you to know what I did to these fucking kids. It is so goddamn brutal. And those aren't the worst deaths. Kincaid actually dies in the script and he has the worst one. How so? So, all right. And again, I apologize for reading a lot of script excerpts for this folks. But again, I think they're pretty interesting, especially in terms of how wild they get. I'm interested. So they light Freddy on fire. They think they've killed him. And then Freddy is lunging after them. So they flee. And they're like, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of these house. He's strong in the house. We got to get somewhere else. So they tell Kristen, they said, we need you to take us somewhere. Because Kristen, it's like I said, her power is much more like just 
summoning and teleportation in the script where she can just will them places. And she said, well, where am I supposed to go? We, you know, we'll think of someplace, you know, well, and you're comfortable going. And so she does. Now, if you've seen never sleep again, you saw Wes Craven talk about how much he disliked the scene of Freddie running around at, you know, the kids party with the hot dogs and the pool party and whatnot. Yep. And was like, Oh, when you see Freddie running around and just like chasing kids around in daylight, it really takes away a lot of his power. I don't know if Craven wrote this or if Wagner wrote this, but it certainly feels like it's Craven going, here's how that scene should have gone. Because what happens is it cuts from this dream sequence to Kristen's parents' house, where they're having a swanky dinner party with all their rich friends. Because they mentioned before that her family's loaded and they don't give two shits about their daughter. So they're having this party and all of a sudden everybody apparates into being and drops from the ceiling like onto the floor and literally crash this party because they just poof into existence. Huh. And the mother is going like, what the hell is this? Where did you come from? And Freddy's there too. He comes into existence with them. And here's the line. So the mother's like, what the hell are you doing? Script. She never gets a chance to finish. Oh. Next instant, Freddy erupts from the floor, volcanic, enraged, a dream bull in a reality china shop. Wow. He lunges, misses Kirsten by an inch. That's why I kept calling her Kirsten, is she's Kirsten in the script and she's Kristen in the finished film. Missing Kirsten by an inch, but slashing right into the mother. The stricken woman crashes backwards into the screaming guests, looking down in horror at her own guts ballooning up through the wound staring at them as if they belong to someone else. Then Freddy buries his head in them, tearing them from her in thick strings like a mad vulture. She screams horribly as her bowels are devoured. Ah! Then he lurches up and leers at Kirsten. Freddy. Next. Wow. That is one of my favorite moments in the whole script is him tearing into her and then just go, next. Jesus. At which point, I'm not kidding. So this is why I said where it's basically a splatterpunk Looney Tunes. They go into an adjacent room. Kincaid's like, your dad has guns, right? And her family has a hunting cabinet, which has an assault rifle that's loaded. And Kincaid just starts spraying down assault rifle fire. Just, ah! Until the clip is empty. <laughs> and it's, it, the script is wild. At this point, they're like, all right, well, we can't stay here. We got to keep going. Where can we go? Think of some other place you know, Kirsten. Kirsten thinks of a place. And it's the institution. So Dr. Sims, she's named, she has a different name in the script, but Dr. Sims is there and it cuts to her. This is very comedy, but she's in her office late at night by herself writing all of a sudden, poof, everyone drops into the room from out of nowhere. (laughs) And she says, what the fuck is this? And everyone is in the room except Kincaid, who they hear say help. Kincaid, where he is apparated, is in the wall. So half of him is in Dr. Sims' office. But half of him is in the room behind him. Oh! And this next part is gross, so if you're squeamish, skip ahead a little bit. He says, oh God, Freddy's behind me. And at which point, Freddy basically takes his glove and sends his glove to drill through Kincaid. Where Kincaid is in the wall convulsing, and all of a sudden the glove bursts out of his head. And what's left of Kincaid sloughs out of the hole, and Freddy climbs through. Oh my god. That's impressive. Wow. The finale of the original script is wild. It is wild. I'm going to take this moment to interject real quick since we're talking about Kincaid. 
Kincaid is played by uh, Ken Sagos. I read this tidbit about him and I love him and I thought I should share it with the world. <laughs> so uh, he stated in an interview that he really didn't want to audition for the role of Kincaid, uh, but his agent talked him into going. So on the day of the audition, he walked in heavy rain to catch a bus to the location. He showed up completely drenched, had to sit and wait for a few hours due to the auditions running late. When it was his turn, director Chuck Russell told him, do whatever you want to do. So Ken was so frustrated and mad about the whole thing, he just goes, fuck you, and then proceeds to scream and curse out Chuck <laughs> Russell. And as he comes to a close, just like unloading himself, Russell immediately hired him. <laughs> <laughs> you got the job. <laughs> Excellent work. That's amazing. Yeah. All the kids in this, I think, are quite good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And Kincaid's one of my favorites. But yeah, I... I, I think everyone in this is pretty exceptionally cast. Everyone's a lot of fun. Well, of the kids. I'm like I said, I'm not crazy about Craig Wasson as an actor, but he's 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 alright in this. I have no further comment on Craig Wasson. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Elizabeth Sims played by Priscilla Pointer, uh, for what she was meant to be, did a pretty good job. Yeah. Although I liked her in uh Twilight Zone and Carrie myself. Yeah, she's good. And also, and what kind of becomes a defining thing in the franchise, we've talked about England before, but this is the movie where it feels like England is like, oh, I just, I'm going to have some fun. Yes. And like we mentioned, the decision to make him quippy, like I said, I went into this thinking that was a Russell Darabont thing. But I mean, I shouldn't say that, that it's there. He has lines, obviously, that are like pointed. And then he has bits, even in the second one, has the, you know, you got the body, I got the brain, you know, prop comedy, tearing his brain out. Boy, huh? 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 But that obviously comes to a new level in this. But it was even there in the the Craven Wagner draft. And that obviously becomes a big thing going forward are, you know, Freddie having zingers for everything for his ironic deaths. Well, he also, he improved half of them. He, he improved the main one, which was welcome to primetime, bitch. Absolutely. Because originally the line was, was what he says before that. He says, here it is, Jennifer, your big break in TV. That whole scene reminded me of the time I put a cigarette out of my hand for 20 bucks. So that was an interesting memory for this film to evoke. What was it worth 20 bucks? Yeah. Uh, that's okay. I'm good. <laughs> it was twenty. Man, I was in high school. Money was hard to come by. I had twenty <laughs> bucks for just putting a cigarette out of my hand. <laughs> yeah. So that bit is at a bowling alley. That bit is in a complete with her putting the cigarette out, and she has the line. I would still she... do that. What are you shaking your head at me for? <laughs> Life is pain. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she has the line pointing at her scars, and she's like regular light menthol. Like all that's in the original. So there's the TV bit, which is the same. With Freddy's head coming out, but as his head comes out in the Craven Wagner draft, the line is, here's Freddy! Obvious reference, then Jennifer, Max, please help me! And then she's screaming, and then Freddy's line is, we've got a wonderful show for you tonight, Jennifer! Lights out! Bam! And puts her head through. So they change that to, it's your big break in TV, and then England changed that, or at least added onto it with Welcome to Primetime, bitch, which has become the... Freddy line. <laughs> it, it really did define him. It, it, you, you see it affect every other delivery he does throughout the rest of the series. One thing I want to note, I'm going to give my wife props. So she's been watching these all with me. I've hooked her. I've hooked her in. She's going to watch all the old horror movies with me now. I'm going to get her to watch, you know, Texas Chainsaw. I'm going to get her to watch Friday the 13th. Got her. <laughs> anyway, so we're watching this one and I'm like, of course, the credits start rolling and I'm just kind of like, you know, dream warriors. And she's like, what the hell is that? I look at the credits. Apparently, all of the grips for this movie were nicknamed Bob. 
<laughs> There's like nine of them. Bob, Bob, it's, Bob, it's, Bob, yeah, it's like it's like you know John Bob Doe, J O Jim Bob. Everyone is a Bob. There's like everyone. They're all Bobs. There's <laughs> like what the hell is this? There's like nine of them. <laughs> it's a precursor to Office Space. It was hilarious. I like we you know it's the Bobs of uh, the Dream Warriors. All the grips are Bobs. That's amazing. And that ending is is so much fun just sitting there while Dream Warriors plays. Uh, one bit about the ending I forgot to mention earlier was Jake mentioning the a scene that really calls into question <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 where Freddy is like, you know, oh, I need a body. I need a body. And this movie says, says, wait a minute. If Freddy really put his mind to it, he could just be a badass Ray Harryhausen skeleton just walking around whenever he fucking felt like <laughs> It's not like to even bring him the glove. He's already got the glove. <laughs> which is a weird continuity bit but it's like wait a minute you could have done this the whole time why did you need a body i don't think you can oh i'm excited for this i don't think you can maintain it that long <laughs> oh i thought that was going to be an explanation for why the skeleton had the glove no 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 <laughs> i'm just saying you know it's it's you know the, the souls give him power but he can only give him so much strength in the real world you know yeah no i, I chalked it up to that i, I honestly i should get even... this so serious i can't help myself <laughs> I was just delighted because clearly Darabont and Russell were like, we got to have a Ray Harryhausen something in here. Absolutely. And this, and this was their way to do it. So I was like, all right, fine. Fuck it. It's wonderful. I love he it. He also has a victory roar like a Tuscan Raider. It's a fabulous yeah. scene that makes no sense, but it's a fabulous scene. He kills John Saxon. He goes, ur, ur, ur. One little thing I like about that, actually, it's like, so they, they find his bones. They dug the hole. They're about to do their thing. And he's busy with Kristen. And then as he's talking to her, his voice changes. Yes. Like his voice gets very normal and he goes, wait, what the hell? And he looks off to the side and like, you can tell that like he knows in that moment he's losing it. His bones aren't even in the grave yet. And he's like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Power dwindling. This is bad. <laughs> and, and he, and he cleans house, you know, but it, it, I, I thought it was a nice transition. Yes. But it clearly shows that he, he has some true connection to the, these remains and just messing with them is clearly going to fuck his day. Yeah. No, great, uh, great delivery by England there. Again, when they choose to do unmodulated lines on this voice is always interesting to me. Yeah. But yeah, uh, for the film as a whole, yeah, I I really dig it. I do not like it more than the first one. But what I enjoy about this one is... So here's how I would kind of summarize it. it was, I said the first movie feels like a shockingly personal movie. The second movie, I, I said before, feels pretty apathetic and it's generally in its execution to me. The third one, this one feels like a just shockingly passionate movie. Like everyone is just so excited to do this and and it is tight it moves at a good clip the scares and the plot beats occur at a pretty good rate to keep you engaged i like them embracing the dream in imagery i like them getting weird with the visuals you know a little bit more so i like that a lot of the visuals in this are strong enough that even now you go oh that looks cool or Ooh, that's nifty yep so it's tight it's ambitious in terms of it's Again, way, way more than they had the budget for, but even though they, they pulled off a shocking amount. Tightly paced, plays with the core concept in fun ways. England is clearly having a good time on oh this Oh my one. god. The premise is a great way to give the cast more of a sense of agency. I agree with you that the first one's a better film, but I feel the third one's a better horror story. 
I think you have, we have better characters. I think we have better production. I think we have better makeup. I think we have a much more kind of interesting uh, monster involved. Mm-hmm. I, I think I just feel all the elements are more of a thrill ride and more of an exciting turn of pace than the first one. Hell, I mean, even from a, a cheap perspective, higher body count, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, decidedly it, so. Yeah, right. You know, and I feel it was much more dreamlike, even. In fact, I, I felt that the the environments were more surreal and more playful and more twisted and odd. And, and the creatures like the snake, for example, much more out there and unexpected where the first one was just him chasing people and strangling people with bedsheets. You know, so I think from a creativity standpoint, the third one is more fun for me and more interesting. But yes, the first one I think is a better film. Okay. If, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Boy, do I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is definitively the best film of the three, just from top to bottom, pacing, special effects, story. It's my favorite. Content, coherency performances i think from top to bottom this is easily the best by a couple of touchdowns mm-hmm. i i would say it's my favorite of the three too for me it's probably so far three two one in terms of how much i enjoyed them i'm assuming that's probably that pattern will stop at the next one but you never know ah, next one's not that bad yeah but you see it sounds like oh, i can't wait to watch this you're like yeah, <laughs> I, I i agree with you you're probably right where three is where it peaks but four i think is not that much worse I just think this is, a, you know, a genuinely good film in everything it does, everything it's trying to accomplish, where the other ones are, are entertaining but severely flawed. This one, I mean, it's not a perfect film, but it's, it's, in tri- I guess I would call it, this is like a AAA video game where the other two were things you would buy on Steam and really be glad you got, but this is the one that's going to cost you 50 bucks and play on every system. It's just, to me, it's the best of them hmm. by a lot. It's also, for whatever this is worth, my impression of Freddy through my entire life as a character is far more based on this one than the first two by yes. a lot. Yes. And I feel like that, and he's an exciting character before this, but this is the one that makes him a pop culture icon for, for good. I like, agree. I it does. Think, I don't think you're getting, you know, Will Smith and Fat Boys videos from him for one and two, but for this one, it's this is when he becomes a real thing no absolutely this this is what really commenced that and then four is going to cement it in terms of the the depiction of frenny as he as we know him as an icon absolutely that's actually one of the things i like not least about this but i like less than the previous ones which i thoroughly enjoy quippy freddy you know where he gets the zingers and gets to play and gets to embellish the dream injury and get a you know funny quip in and because Robert England's having a good time. But in terms of the concept and the world, especially as laid out in the first one, Freddy works best for me where he's truly vicious and truly mean. Mm. That's the stuff I gravitate to me more. I think the dream element, while it's obviously fun to play with a godlike character who can do essentially anything, and because he can toy with you to his whims and, and just crack wise constantly, is obviously a ton of fun. But in terms of the elements where it feels like your personal space and your self is being invaded, the idea of someone who's just really vicious and and truly cruel about it, I like more. That's one element. I don't think the the Craven-Wagner draft would have been like a far better movie than this. I think it's give and take. I think there's elements of it that would have been better. 
elements of it that would have been decidedly worse. I said, again, the kids get really far less screen time. And one of the good decisions is giving more time to the kids in this one. But you know, the downside of that is you take away some of Nancy's story. But one of the things I like about it is Freddie, although he is much more quippy in that draft, like I said, he is brutal as fuck. Like, it's not just that it's, it's explicit and drippy and splatter punk it is just, he is mean in it to, to the point that, you know, like I said, they show like, even from an infant, like that whole opening image as zany as it was, was there to show that, no, he is this truly rotten. He's just evil soul from inception. So that's stuff I gravitate to more from the first ones, but no, I, I'm absolutely going to have fun watching the rest of these because I still enjoy, you know, Freddie. It's going to be fun watching those Freddy's Nightmares episodes where he basically just shows up with a creep keeper to go, hey, <laughs> crazy zinger. It, it, oof. Tell you, man, th- that series broke me. There's like this ongoing storyline with cannibals. Oh, <laughs> but it's funny. I when I was watching this, I said one of two things is going to happen. I said, Jake is definitely going to like this more than the first one. I said, but like the main point at which I thought of it was was when it breaks out into the, the Harry House and skeleton. It's like, all right, yeah. either this is going to be too much of it just. Again, not giving a fuck about consistency for him, or he's still going to dig it because essentially it takes place at Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. So. <laughs> Look, if if you're going to do shit like that skeleton that doesn't make any fucking sense in any context you provided, at least make it a Harryhausen skeleton because I'm down with that 100% <laughs> of the time. You wouldn't have had him put it on fishing lines like they did Freddy's arms in the first one, where it's just <laughs> like stop. Like I like stop motion skeleton and monsters, man. I it does sometimes it just doesn't take much with me. Sometimes it takes quite a lot, but that's one of those things where you can get away. You can yeah, you can get away with a lot with me if you got Harryhausen skeletons. Harryhausen for the win. But hey, at least we know coming out of this, you 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 really liked one of them, so that's good. Oh, I like the second one. Yeah, well, I mean, really liked. I mean, you seem pretty keen on this one so. yeah no i i have a lot of good memories of this as it turns out that were triggered by this and it's a fun film and you mean nostalgia <laughs> <laughs> yes part of why i like this film is nostalgia i can admit it i feel like he's projecting <laughs> <laughs> well let's project ourselves into the next film And here we go, the last movie for the first part of our Elm Street retrospective, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, Citizens on Patrol. And for this movie, we're bringing on a very (laughs) special guest. He is the writer of many young readers' books and comics, including the recently released Spider-Ham, Great Power, No Responsibility from Scholastic, with a sequel, Hollywood Mayhem, coming in late 2022. Also the writer of Cheater Code and in the horror genre, the Night Train short from TKO. Alongside Steve Orlando, he's the co-writer of Rainbow Bridge and the horror graphic novel Party and Prey from Aftershock. As an editor, he's the editor of Department of Truth from Image Comics. And alongside that book's writer, James Tynan, he's the co-creator of the horror magazine Razorblade, which I have all four of next to me, but just grab the top one. Very, very excited to have on the pod. Please join me welcoming Steve Fox. Yay! Hello, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. I mean, any excuse to talk about myself and Freddy Krueger. <laughs> How can you go wrong? <laughs> or Police Academy in this case. Uh, Jake made reference in our discussion of Dream Warriors to Craig Wasson having some Steve Gutenberg-esque qualities. <laughs> so I figured I'm just leaning into that for all the future movies. 
It's going to be Elm Street 5, Operation Miami Beach. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to Wes Craven's mission to Moscow when we get to that one. So. The only way this works, though, is you find the proper, you know, analog for Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> <laughs> it's not entirely inaccurate since this is also potentially the film that begins Freddy's transition into prop comic in, yep. in some senses. Uh, but we'll get into that. But yeah, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. And I know you're a big fan of the franchise, but tell us a little bit about your history with the franchise. Was it something you saw growing up? Or Sure, yeah. So actually, despite being really immersed in the world of horror comics now, um, I was a late bloomer when it comes to the genre. Hmm. Uh, I was a big scaredy cat as a kid. Hey, I know all about that. Yeah, I was terrified of, of horror stuff as a kid. I had this persistent fear that I was going to turn a corner and see Leatherface, which is nice. I mean, he's like the least quiet slasher. (laughs) I don't think he's ever going to be the one that sneaks up on you. But my, uh, so I'm kind of the youngest person in my biological family. My cousins were like over a decade older than me. And um, one of my cousins had the talking Freddy Krueger doll. So I just had so many childhood uh, nightmare, no pun intended, nightmares of, <laughs> of seeing this thing in my grandmother's curio cabinet and just being way too afraid to ever watch any of them. And the turning point for me, because um, I'd always liked spooky. I think I made a clear distinction between like spooky and scary. Like I'd read about werewolves or ghosts, but I, I couldn't watch horror movies. And then um when Gore Verbinski's Ring remake came out, Ooh. that was the one where I was like, okay, I'm going to tough it out. I'm going to watch this. I didn't finish it the first time. <laughs> I got terrified at the closet scene, which is like three minutes into the movie. That broke me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a pretty, that's kind of like exposure therapy if you're yes. horror resistant. But I ended up circling back and that just opened the floodgates and I, I've really become a horror nut. Uh, I became a horror nut then. And I've just spent the last, you know, decade and a half at this point going through every corner of the genre I can. But even slashers and franchise horror, I came later to that because at first I was like, okay, I'm going to do the pretentious ones. I'm going to do the classics. I'm going to do like critically acclaimed foreign horror. So it was only a couple of years ago that I I blitzed through all the Halloween, Friday, and Nightmare movies. Nice. I still have not seen every Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I think that's just like masochistic to watch all of them. (laughs) They get interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And of that, uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is the one that I just don't, I think, does not miss. Uh, You know, Freddy's Dead is not great, but it's more watchable than almost every Halloween sequel and half the Friday the 13th movies. So uh, that was the one that I kind of glommed on to the most. And I've seen the whole franchise multiple times at this point. I rewatched four today with my partner uh, who had never seen it before. So, yeah, I just I really fell for it. It's funny you mentioned those specific four franchises. The the reason we're doing Elm Street is we had a Twitter poll for which franchise to cover. Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Texas Chainsaw was second. It came close. Because it, it gets so ridiculous. Yeah, and I haven't seen all of them. I, I think I got as far as... So everything after the reboot by Marcus Nispel. Um, what was that, like 2000, 2001. So everything yeah. after that... I haven't seen. So absolutely looking forward to getting to that one at some point because yeah, (laughs) just the first few of those are fascinating. I think at this point there are now as many or more remakes than there were original movies, right? It's got to be, I believe so at least even. And the nomenclature gets horrific because it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw, Leatherface. It's like, it's impossible to tell which movie you're watching. Yeah. 
the weird thing is of the Platinum Dune movies, which I don't think are good um, on average, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably actually the best. Yes. It's certainly better than like the Friday the 13th remake mm-hmm. or the Nightmare remake. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it <laughs> doesn't hold a candle to the original film. But I always say my like pretentious stance on the franchise horror is Halloween's the best single film. Friday's the most fun franchise and Nightmare's the best franchise overall. That's a fair assessment. Yeah, I don't think that's all that controversial. But I no. have met the weird, like, ardent Halloween defenders who like the whole series. And, I mean, I, I just find anything after the first. Just, like... just gotta say, call the thorn and then walk away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, I'm feeling a pretty attacked right at the moment, I gotta say. <laughs> I've never gotten into most of the franchises. Like, oh. this was the first time I've ever watched Nightmare 4. And I've never seen anything past this. I've seen maybe the first Friday the 13th. I've never seen a single Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I've seen all but one of the Halloween World. I haven't seen, I guess, all but three. How many did Rob Zombie make? Three? He made two. I haven't seen those, and I haven't seen the one after H2O, or Resurrection. Oh, or yeah. I never saw Resurrection either. I, I actually think H2O is a better series ending than the, the David Gordon Green movies. I'm not a big fan of those. H2O, I like how that wrapped up Laurie's story, and I had no interest in watching Resurrection. Isn't Resurrection the one with Buster Rhymes as, like, a reality TV show host? I mean... Wait, what? Yeah! What? He, like, drop kicks Michael Myers at one point. Uh, What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Although we're gonna get to talk about uh, martial arts versus slasher villains Oh, yes. (laughs) Shit, I might watch that tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know Buster Rhymes was in it, man. I'm still going off higher learning for him, man. (laughs) But I I guess I'm still in my, what do you call it, the pretentious movie phase as far as horror. Like, uh, I'm still... I, I think you're just pretentious. (laughs) <laughs> well i wasn't gonna say it i knew you would so i mean Thanks, nick listen i can relate but it was, it was it was such like pure joy when i set aside an october to watch all the franchise movies because there's mm. so much fun to be had in these yes and also i should mention you know child's play doesn't get enough credit as a franchise yeah i love child's play yeah because actually actually that's probably more consistent than halloween or friday the 13th yep but not Nightmare. Nightmare is hands down. Um, I got to know, who was I arguing with this about? Maybe Zach Thompson, who's another comic writer. Someone, mm-hmm. or actually, I think it was Lonnie Nadler. But we were talking about the best overall franchise. Oh, you know what? It, she's going to kill me. It was Lonnie's wife, Jenna. Jenna, <laughs> Jenna Cha, who's an amazing horror artist. But she tweeted, like, you know, what's the best horror franchise? And a lot of people were making the case for Alien. And Alien's my favorite movie. If you could... If I had lights on, you could see my whole wall is probably about 30 different Xenomorph posters. <laughs> nice. But I, I I don't know. I don't think of the whole thing as like a horror franchise. I guess I kind of Only think Only one of, of them is a horror movie. It's The problem is... A, <laughs> three, a fair, three is a horror movie for sure. Okay, I'll give you that. They're, they're a, a fascinating mix of horror and action film. Yeah, and I just don't think of them as like a horror franchise in the same way. It's okay. Alien is kind of its own thing. So for me, uh, my bet is always going to be Nightmare on Elm Street as the best overall franchise. But and also Prometheus is technically part of the Alien franchise, which almost excludes it entirely from any you know awards here. Uh, I've never heard that name. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Sounds interesting. I'll look it up someday. <laughs> We're eventually going to do that on this podcast, and my all Eric's going to pick up from my mic is a high pitched keening. <laughs> <laughs> so, if I remember correctly, Steve, like your favorites from the Elm Street franchise were kind of the unofficial trilogy of the the one, three, and seven, right? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I enjoyed the entire thing, not counting the remake, but the three that Wes, Cra- ugh, Wes Craven had the closest hand in, uh, one, three, and seven, I think work really well as a trilogy. Absolutely. Mm. And the first time I ever saw them, I saw them as one, three, and seven, and I went back and watched the whole thing in sequence. So how did Dream Master hold up for you on the rewatch, Steve? Actually, Dream Master held up better than the first time I watched it because watching it right off of three, I go back and forth all the time on if one or three is the better movie. Mm. I think like I will give weight to something that blazed a trail, even if it's rougher overall. Mm. So it's hard for me not to think one is the overall better movie. And I'm, you know, podcasts are famously a visual medium, so everyone can hear that I'm making air quotes. But uh <laughs> Oh, I have a stack of props next to me for every recording that, that no one else. <laughs> Three is so strong and is maybe one of the best horror sequels of all time. So it's hard to go straight from three to four. And the other benefit I got watching it cold today was that I didn't have to compare Patricia Arquette and Tuesday Night directly. So <sighs> Kristen gets recast between the movies. And actually, I think Tuesday Night does a great job. Mm-hmm. But it was hard to watch them back to back the first time because they're so tonally different. You know, yes. three three does have a stronger foot in the horror realm than four does. Mm. And Patricia Arquette is just kind of like more naturally haunted. Like it makes sense that she went on to do other kinds of genres because she has a little more range of an actress than uh, Tuesday Night does. But she she's great. She's really fun. She made for a great replacement. And not having to compare her directly made four stand up a lot better. I'm going to give Tuesday Night the Edge in singing voice. Yes, yeah, absolutely. for sure. That opening song's kind of a bop. She does sing the opening theme, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is not on the soundtrack. Yeah, and when I was reading up on this before the recording, there was also she had said that she did not know she was going to be the opening song until she saw it in theaters. Oh wow! Yeah, it's funny for the movie that has the shorthand of being "quote unquote" the MTV nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> and it, and it, it's literally from the very from the New Line Cinema because you this is the first one that doesn't begin with score. It it goes right into a pop song. Yep. Also, MTV is on screen. Yes, it is. Yeah, kind of an extended commercial there. Yeah. The other thing is when I joke about being pretentious, like I am. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I'm a, like a real hater when it comes to TV and movies. That's why, like, you almost never see me like tweet any opinions about things because I just. Like, I don't want to discourse about anything online. But one of the things that drives me nuts in a lot of modern movies is, like, the needle drops, especially, like, the Netflixification of movies. Like, I don't know if you watched the Fear Street trilogy, but trying to get through, like, all the songs they're trying to cram into those movies is unbearable to me. (laughs) I actually thought that the music suited the scenes in Nightmare 4 pretty well. Yes. As much as I can say the Vinnie Vincent experience suits anything, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> or the Sea Hags. Yeah, the Sea Hags. And who's the who who plays during the karate scene? That song's actually pretty great. It's uh, uh Drama Rama, is that Drama Rama, yeah. yeah. Drama Rama, anything, anything, I'll give you. That's a bop. Played during both of their training montages. Yeah, they bring it back. Yeah, there's a lot to be said to this movie's a overall approach in it trying to very much capture the time in which it was made so to lead us kind of into it before i forget nick you want to do our production rundown real quick i'd be happy to so this is uh, nightmare on street (laughs) four so you you can't see this at home because it's a podcast but nick 
keeps the laptop keeps moving very far away and then be like like it does look like he's going in and out of a pit (laughs) you can leave i I will deal with the fan noise (laughs) this is very exciting on our end i digress (laughs) so like we said this is a nightmare on street for the dream master from 1988 uh directed by rennie harlan boy is it (laughs) <laughs> i had no idea my very first note is rennie harlan with like five yeah. exclamation points yeah. <laughs> say, one of your favorite directors devil's pass devil's pass yeah not to mention you know he's involved with die hard 2 exorcist the beginning deep blue sea and cliffhanger i mean the man's got some chaps but but devil's pass but devil's pass <laughs> i will say this um but like his style is absolutely on display this movie functions and when i say this it's not to belittle anything about his actual execution of the movie but this movie does feel like a multi-million dollar audition tape of rennie harlan's in some respects in terms of the imagery and the visuals and whatnot but well in all honesty it 100 was his audition tape because he like camped out at new line cinema like every day for like a week until they get to get the the job yeah (laughs) so what's he auditioning with the dog (laughs) god only knows but so I had been meaning for years to watch his previous movie, Prison, and I finally did as part of the research for this episode. And Prison is is not a great movie, but if you look at Prison, it's absolutely it. If you see that, it's like, oh yeah, give him the job, absolutely, because just the execution of the horror moments in that, the visuals, it, it, like this movie, there's a lot of extreme backlighting, a lot of you know just cracks forming and something and light bursting through in pretty much every single scare sequence. So that movie's really interesting to watch. I thought it was his first movie. It's not. He made one movie before that. Prison's his first movie that he made in America. Before that, he made a movie in Finland called Born American. Oh my. Which, if there's anyone out there who has a fondness for 80s action nonsense with, (laughs) you know, communism, paranoia, then... I have not laughed so hard in ages. Uh, The premise of it is three asshole Americans who are vacationing in Finland. The movie starts with text that talks about the nebulous borders Russia has and how accidental border crossings happen all the time. So you think that's going to be the premise? No, it's three asshole Americans who go to Finland, literally limbo under the gate, separating Finland from Russia. It is. And then it turns into a prison escape film. Oh, my God. How do you say Wolverines in Finnish? You you literally <laughs> just described a movie I watched as a child that I couldn't remember or find again. Holy crap! I'm going to go back and watch this. It, it might be born American. It's <laughs> holy crap. It it is not. I it, oh my gosh! It is so Rennie Harlan, <laughs> and he wrote that one. So wow! Now I want to see it. I think um, right off the bat, I'm going to say that my biggest complaint with this film has to be with the writing, but we'll get into the more of that later. And that has a lot to do with the fact this happened during the writer's strike. Yes. And so what a lot of people may not know is, is that, you know, you have a writer come and they make a screenplay and then they stick around and they help throughout the movie doing rewrites and making sure things flow and connect and work with what the director wants to do. And they didn't have that for this film. (laughs) So um, I'm fairly certain, if I remember correctly, uh, Rennie Harlan actually mapped out the actual nightmares based on his own nightmares. So they're very much things he grew up with. That being said, the majority of the writing was done by three individuals. Four. Four individuals. Four. Mm -hmm. William Kotzwinkel, who worked on Fat Boys Are You Ready for Freddy and Book of Love. 
Yeah, let's talk about William Kotzwinkel real quick. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so William Kotzwinkel is a rather prolific novelist and has written quite a bit. He was he wrote a book, I think it was in the late 70s, called Dr. Rat, which was actually nominated for the World Fantasy Award. Uh, he just released a novel this year called Felonious Monk, which is about a mafia hitman who decides to give up his life and enter a monastery but his old life just won't let him go i guess and <laughs> that absolutely came about because he thought of that title like how do i make a book from this title <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in addition to writing a lot of you know, genre stuff uh he wrote a lot of children's work as well i think he wrote the novelization for et he's also one of the writers on walter the farting dog and he also wrote a novel called Jack in the Box, which, like Nick mentioned, was turned into, speaking of props I have that no one will ever see, <laughs> Book of Love. This came out in 1990, and he wrote the screenplay. This is an adaptation of his novel. But the reason I picked it up was it's directed by Bob Shea, the ah! head of New Line Cinema. This was his directorial debut. So it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not care for it. <laughs> <laughs> But it's actually, it was pretty well timed for reasons we'll get into in our next episode where we're going to talk about Black Christmas. But yeah, I have to assume that might be part of how William Kotzwinkel got involved in this with him working with Bob Shea on a movie immediately after Nightmare 4. So I have to assume there's a bit of a connection there. So how, how often do you think people make that joke with William Kotzwinkel and who wrote the Book of Love? Yeah, that, that is where the title of the movie comes Cause from. Because that would be every cocktail party for me ever again if I was him. <laughs> Well, speaking of him uh, moving from that project to this project, apparently it was well known that if you got a job in New Line Cinema, you were kind of guaranteed work because they would just keep reusing people very much yep. in a similar to the Corman model. And speaking of other writers, we also have Brian Helgeland, mm -hmm. who also wrote 976 Evil 1 and 2. <laughs> just the first one. I thought he did both. I think he just did characters for the second one. Okay, uh, you might be right there. But he also wrote, and this is a fun dichotomy, The Postman and A Knight's Tale. Directed A Knight's Tale. So yeah, yeah Brian, Brian Helgeland had his start doing a lot of genre film work and then kind of hit big when he worked on the screenplay for L.A. Confidential. Wow. And then that kind of spun into a writing directing career because he wrote and directed Knight's Tale. He wrote and directed Payback, uh, wrote and directed The Order, which also had Heath Ledger. So, yeah, he kind of really broke out in like the last couple decades and had a pretty long run there. The I liked 2000s. all those movies, even The Postman. I can admit that. Well, you like the postman because it has like one of your favorite cameos. Yes, that, <laughs> that, that's one hundred percent accurate. But that's enough to make me like the whole movie. <laughs> and finally, on the writers' reel, we have uh, Jim and Ken Wheat, who both wrote After Midnight, The Fly Two, and all of the Riddick properties. Just all of them. <laughs> if it has Riddick in it, Jim and Ken Wheat. Yeah, they did the original draft of Pitch Black. David Tui did rewrites, and then, yeah, they get credit, everything after that. They also wrote and directed Ewoks Battle for Endor. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, I missed that. What a pedigree this movie has. <laughs> and they are credited in the finished film as a pseudonym, Steve Pierce. And the reason for that is, like you mentioned, there was the writer's strike, which they broke. They were writing on this movie during the strike. So in the finished film, they were submitted under this pseudonym. Scabs. <laughs> and worth noting too and talking about real quick about the screenplay and bits of it being based on rennie harlan's dreams and whatnot i read the script for this it is 74 pages it is wow incredibly breezy so 
And there's only a few bits and pieces that are in the script that aren't in the, the finished film, which we'll mention as we go. How much do you have to write for ironic death? Quip, move on. <laughs> <laughs> Copy paste. It, it is worth noting that you bring it up. That of the first four, this is the quippiest. Uh-huh. This is easily the movie with the most Kruger lines. Yeah, by a couple of touchdowns. And, and I think it, it really kind of starts to flesh out his character. Like, I feel like he was the most Kruger in this of all four. Because that's just who he is. He is the asshole. <laughs> you know, he's got this godlike power. He can be in your, in your dream and drop an anvil on you in a second. But that's not enough. He's got to be quippy. He's got to be a jerk. And he's got to make it hurt. <laughs> yeah. Which brings us to the editors. Uh, first, Michael N. Canoe, who also worked on Shudder. Night of the Creeps, House, and Dead Silence. Wow. Very happy with that lineup. <laughs> then we have Jack Tucker, who edited uh, Biohazard, Terror Squad, and The Dead Undead. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> Zombie vampires, man. It's not that hard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then also the last editor was Chuck Weiss, who worked on Brothers in Arms, American Eagle, and Martial Law. Cinematography was by Steven Feierberg. Who worked on Hell High, Red Letters, and Secretary. Then we have music by Craig Safan, who worked on uh, The Last Starfighter, Thief, and Fade to Black. You left it. Th- All right. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Thank you for putting Thief in there. One of my he only did one track on Thief. Most of Thief was done by Tangerine Dream, but they were on tour, and Michael Mann needed one more track, so Craig Safan was brought in to pinch it on that. So thank you. I love that. Maybe my, one of my favorite makeup artists on this was Screaming Mad George, who has worked on Nightmare on Street 3, Faust. Yeah, I was going to say, if you don't say Faust, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> the Abyss, Big Trouble in Little China, The Giver, Society, and Jack Frost. There are a lot of makeup folks on this, but one thing I'll mention real quick for Screaming Mad George, Heather Wixon of The Daily Dead recently put out a book, Monsters, Makeup, and Effects, Volume 1, where... She goes through and interviews multiple makeup artists, and there's an interview with Screaming Mad George in here, and with, they cover his work on Nightmare 4, among other things. Nice. And then we have, of course, the Freddy Krueger makeup creator was Kevin Yeager for this, who also worked on Sleepy Hollow, Bride of Chucky, and Bordello Blood. Any other makeup artists you want to bring up, Eric? Uh, Steve Johnson, uh, who you can decidedly tell which bit is his because it's the bit that has Linnea Quigley in it because they were uh, together at the time. <laughs> is that why? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's why, that's why Linnea Quigley is randomly in the film. She was in a lot during the 80s. I thought, yeah, I thought she was just, like, contractually obligated to be in all horror movies throughout the 1980s. Yep. How do you, how do you pitch her on this? We need you to be inside Freddy, boobs out. We're not actually going to see your face, really, but, you know. She must have been the nude one, because, you know. Has to be. Yep. That's her career. And, <laughs> and this one was particularly bad, too, because they had this giant, like, chest rig to do it. So they had, like, the, the actors just pushing through the skin, you know, and doing their best to look menacing. And it was held by this, like, four and a half foot tall, you know, intern at the top holding the, the whole thing <laughs> in place. And it, the whole thing just tips. She falls from the rigging. Everyone yep. lands on their faces. I mean, it's, it was awful. It's a goddamn miracle no one died. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, of course, this is, again, produced and distributed by New Line Cinema. Did you get Kevin Benson, the music supervisor, in there at all? I did not. The only reason I, I looked him up because I was curious, because th- there's a lot of interesting tracks on this from, like, Sinead O'Connor and, mm-hmm. you know, the Fat Boys and, you know, the Divinals is in this, which is awesome. But he, he the music supervisor, he also worked on Hard Bodies, Heavenly Bodies, which are two different movies, apparently. Just one <laughs> of the guys, Fright Night, Critters 2, Freddy 5, so the next one, House Party, Pumpkinhead 2, and Nick's favorite, The Granny. 
Wow. I wouldn't say my favorite. <laughs> you made me watch that at 2 o'clock in the morning, half drunk at Shannon's. That's your favorite for now on. That was Shannon's <laughs> fault, not mine. Well, I, don't, I was half drunk. I don't know whose fault it was, but I'm blaming you because we have a podcast. But he also, he got a, he didn't work on it, but he got a special thanks on the Pump Up the Volume soundtrack, which was one of those formative soundtracks for me. So I had to at least bring it up Nice in this. And as the, uh, the Concrete Blonde Leonard Cohen cover of Everybody Knows that's like a top 15 all-time song for me. So I don't know what he had to do with it, but I'm giving him credit for it. So there you go. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's fair. And to kind of transition us from Nightmare 3 into Nightmare 4 a bit, to talk a little bit of some stuff left over from our Dream Warriors discussion and talk about the, the evolution of Freddy kind of spinning out of that movie, which was Dream Warriors actually, in, in looking at it, actually had a pretty significant press tour. Uh, England was on Good Morning America. He was on The Late Show with Joan Rivers. The Dokken video was a hit. It was around that time they put out the Freddy's Greatest Hits vinyl, which, which, <laughs> which begins with the track Do the Freddy <laughs> Dance. And, um, doesn't have the Will Smith song on it, though. Doesn't have? No. <laughs> But there was also the Freddy uh, Being My Nightmare sweepstakes, which was to win a part in Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Nice. And then when you get to Elm Street 4, this one, it just even takes it a step further. There was a making of special for this that was an hour long that ran on, I think it was USA. There was the Freddy Krueger hour, which was an MTV special where there's a bunch of bumpers of him hunting Kevin Seal, one of the uh, MTV hosts which was aired on August 19th, the same day this was released. And Robert England did a promotional spot for this movie on Nickelodeon. What? <laughs> he appeared on Don't Just Sit There as Robert England, but with the glove and had this whole bit about what to serve at your next dinner party, which was an excuse for him to skewer cocktail weenies with his <laughs> glove. And then also he does the bit they did as in this movie where he peels the apple with, uh, <laughs> with the, the index finger blade. Nice. I, I remember a lot of the hype around this when it came out or like that that Freddy moment. Like that's part of the reason we watched the first three is just because it it suddenly became so ubiquitous that even as a kid, it, it shaved, let's say, 15 to 20 percent off the, the raw terror I had at the idea of watching horror movies. Because <laughs> like if he's going to be all over MTV, how scary could this movie possibly be? Freddy Krueger just 100% invaded and infested all of the zeitgeist of that time. It was just, it was the thing to be, you know, involved with or connected to. And it, and it was different than like Jason or, or Michael Myers. Like he was a pop icon. But he had a personality. Whereas they were horror icons. Yeah, he's like the, the Bart Simpson of slashers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, all the rest of them were forces of nature. You know, terrifying in their own right, but mainly just walking very quickly and being quiet. whereas freddy is just gonna like badmouth your mother (laughs) and then take you down but even so even within that he's probably the only well i would say there's probably two there's probably two horror icons that had this huge an impact on pop culture as it did and the other one being i'm not gonna remember the character from the ring Oh, Samara, Samara in, the, in the U.S. one. Sadako in Japan, I believe. Yes, that Samara is. was was everywhere for a while because that movie got huge. The, you know, and it's and it's like to the point where like I told the story earlier in the podcast about going out for Halloween dressed as my own character, and everybody thought I was Freddy Krueger. Like these are the moms answering the door on Halloween saying, "Are you Freddy Krueger?" And it's like, no, but how do you even you know talking to my mom about doing this podcast and. She says, oh, I think I saw those movies. And she absolutely did not. <laughs> but she remembers the name and she remembers Freddy Krueger. And that's 
you know, again, my mom is 80. And, you know, if it doesn't have to do with the New York Mets or the Brooklyn Dodgers, she barely cares. So, <laughs> you know, for her to remember Freddy Krueger, it's significant. And it, and it really, to my mind, it speaks to how ubiquitous and how just everywhere he was for a while. Yeah. And this is the movie that really kind of we, we talked a bit in the Dream Warriors review about that movie's depiction of Freddy and where it starts to that there was always a degree of you know, ironic deaths to a degree or at least quippiness to Freddy. You know, like in Nightmare 2, there's the you got the body, I got the brain, rips the head open, you know, prop comedy bit there. But they lean We're into good. it more in Dream Warriors. <laughs> And like I mentioned, I expected that was going to be a Chuck Russell, Frank Darabont thing. But turns out reading the Craven Wagner draft that was there even beforehand, it was just he was far crueler and meaner about it than he was in the finished film. But that kind of started the pivot. And then just England having fun with the role to that degree. He and letting has him kind of go nuts. such a blast. Mm-hmm. He, he clearly hams it up every time and just like loves it. Just any chance he could get to play the role or be that in public you, you can just see the glee behind his eyes it's like <laughs> it's also the first movie where he got top billing yep like everybody all the other credits are you know alphabetical order but he's right there he's what you're coming for that's the whole reason you're there i mean i don't think a lot of people were there for tuesday night but <laughs> the other thing in freddie's favor when it comes to kind of like cultural penetration i think is he, he's really the most consistent slasher character like his character is always additive. You might find out more things about him, but he's essentially the same each time yes. rather than getting a little campier. Whereas like, you know, Jason, it takes like four movies for him to cohere into what he's going to be. And then it still goes back and forth. Yep. Michael, it really goes off the rails. <laughs> so I think like Freddie being such a consistent presence, even as the movies worsen, you've still got the same quintessential person in the center of it all. I can't actually recall any real retcons with him. You're right. It's he's, he's very consistent and everything is just additive. Not doesn't change. Yeah. Well, the, the worst is really just in Freddy's dead where it, it makes it explicit that he's a pedophile who uh, yeah, yeah. abused his own daughter. Yeah. But, and, and that's such like a late, a late stage change. And that's why everyone jokes that Freddy's dead, you know, killed the franchise for a bit. But even that change is less of a change and more of a we all kind of knew and didn't talk about. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's saying something that the movies avoided saying for a long time. Exactly. But I think, you know, probably wise to avoid yes, saying yes. <laughs> for a long time. Like you know, my boyfriend watching this could make the jump without, you know, the movie needing to come out and say like, yeah, he, yeah you don't need that. Yeah. 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 And you don't. But it, the only one that even kind of gets close to anything sexual in most of these movies other than a couple of wet dreams is too right which is completely yeah. psychosexual yeah. And, and is such a yep. a weird one to talk about and i'm sure you guys had a blast uh dissecting all that and unpacking all that oh yeah and it's also the only one who got its own documentary because of how yep. terrific one weirdly it lines up with the star's real life and everything it, that's got quite a few defenders and i like it as like an oddity and i think in a lot of ways it's got some things that are much scarier than the rest of the franchise mm-hmm. but i i guess i i mentally i don't really think of it as part of the franchise in the same way it's hard to it, it's yeah. very much separate from the fran- it, it's by itself it's wonderful but trying to fit it in for- <laughs> <laughs> but trying to fit it into the franchise is is difficult yeah it doesn't really work if it had been like the sixth movie you know after we kind of finished all the other things maybe it would make more sense but 
as the second installment, it doesn't make any sense. Agreed. Yeah, I what hinders the enjoyment of two a bit for me, and I, and I enjoy it. But but what I mentioned in our review of that was the execution of it from a directorial and and from a writing perspective. It just feels so apathetic to me. Mm, we, that's we, we had a big that's debate fair. about this because <laughs> it's Jake's favorite. Or no, no, no. It's, <laughs> sorry, I forgot. Dream Warriors is better, but but Jake likes two quite a bit. So we had a bit, whole bit. Yeah, thing I'm going to keep my, my opinions to two to myself for this segment because I don't want to make Eric throw his mic again. <laughs> it's like the... Uh... It's like the season of the witch of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Yeah, yes. like it's kind of its own thing. There are people who would go to bat for it forever, but as a whole, it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into the puzzle. Yeah. So, like my shorthand for him so far has been that the first movie on a rewatch feels shockingly personal. Like just the amount of his own history that Craven brings to it, and it just has a surprising intimacy to it. Two has a lot of interesting elements to it, but again, just the overall execution is it feels so apathetic that it buffers it a bit for me. You know, I I don't enjoy that one as much. Three is such an enthusiastic movie where they're so clearly embracing, you know, so many of the visual elements and getting to stretch a bit while also getting to delve into the characters a bit. You know, Chuck Russell and Darabont both have very good character sensibilities. So those characters flourish a bit. It really establishes the backstory and gives it life and a soul. Yeah. yeah. And my shorthand for this one, and this is a really left field <laughs> image, but my my best comparison point for this movie versus Nightmare 3 is the image of the riderless tricycle which appears in both movies <laughs> because in nightmare three there is the sequence in forget which kids room it is but there's a shot the institution room the door opens and there is a slow shot of the tricycle wheeling in no rider on it and it leaves this bloody trail so it just slowly enters comes to a stop and then there's a cut and there's a tracking shot as the camera goes around and it's just sort of melts in on itself and collapses from an unknown heat source and just kind of buckles under this really kind of slow, creepy image in this movie, in the opening sequence, there is a shot of that riderless tricycle that gets chucked the hell down a staircase <laughs> and just boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and it's like, that's kind of this movie in a nutshell, <laughs> which is this movie is is the bombastic one. And even outside of the dream sequences, it is loud. It moves a mile a minute and it's pretty fun. And it's also just plain pretty. Well, I, I, I agree 100% it's pretty. I feel that it, arguably of the first four, it is the best and worst. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that, I still think three is by far the winner. But So so let me just throw this at this just real quick. <laughs> Nick just said, arguably, this movie is the best and worst. And now I need to know when Nick is running for office. Because that's the most perfect <laughs> politician statement I have ever heard in my life. No, let's be clear Little here. tiny American flags for some, man. The thing is, you have to understand that a movie is multifaceted. And in this case, I felt the writing for this was rough. I mean, the nightmares themselves at their core are very simplistic. They're very base. The ending is a goddamn joke. it doesn't add anything to the backstory or the heart or soul of it hell there are multiple problems and logic issues throughout and if you look at it from that standpoint this movie is bad it's just bad (laughs) but they went out of their way to try to make up for that they had a lot of bombasticness they had the special effects are top notch i mean hell the goddamn cockroach for christ's sake 
I mean, that is stellar. You know, and the way, you know, the one character just kind of deflate. Oh, yes. You know, so <laughs> it's stellar, except they cast somebody with no muscles to be the muscular one. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, what it comes down to is anytime you're like, okay, bring the makeup crew in, you just want to get your popcorn out and start clapping ahead of time because every goddamn effect in this is glorious and visually it's stunning. And I love it for that. Absolutely. But on the whole, the writing drags it down into a lower position than three. One of the things I noticed on this rewatch too is that of the first six movies, if we you know if we count two as its own thing, this movie has the least to say about Freddy. It's got the, yes. least, the least lore about Freddy. It doesn't tell us anything new about Freddy. Mm-hmm. Three explains so much. The bastard son of a thousand maniacs or whatever the line is. Five goes into the dream child stuff. Six, the daughter. But this really has nothing to say. And even the whole dream master conceit is really non-existent. Yeah. It's oh my like God. This this one <laughs> completely unbelievable high school lecture about a concept that, that then... Yeah, I missed that class. <laughs> that then doesn't matter at all. So it's really it, like... It leads to a second throwaway line that Freddie throws out later. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, you could remove the whole thing and it, it wouldn't matter at all. And the thing that like strikes me just from a again, to sound pretentious, like when, as like a writer and editor or anything, you can't really watch or read anything without having some of an eye toward that. The dream master are the two female leads. You don't have to introduce this other concept. They already are dream masters. You don't need these gateways or whatever. You've just described the two girls. (laughs) Like you don't need to explain this in some ridiculous fashion. So hell, in the very beginning, they're touching on the fact that you know Alice is this excellent daydreamer. She's constantly daydreaming. Lean into that. That's my my boyfriend. As a fresh watch, he was like he was getting a kick out of guessing like how these characters would meet their ends because it's like oh I need my inhaler. (laughs) <laughs> and, and when Alice comes on, he's like, oh, she's a daydreamer. It's going to be something with daydreaming. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, this stuff is not particularly subtle. <laughs> like, nope. So they did not need like a lecture w- with a cameo from um, Bob Shea lecturing about dreams to <laughs> 17 year olds who are all clearly, you know, in their <laughs> mid 30s to early 40s. <laughs> There are a lot of there are a lot of places where like the writing because I think that the cast is actually incredibly charismatic and yes that's yeah. also something I think the Nightmare franchise has head and shoulders above the other franchise horror films is that even though all these kids are archetypes they're fun and you get a more fully rounded picture of who they are or at least why they like each other than you do in like the average Friday the Thirteenth movie which is really just fodder like they're just canon fodder yep. But here you're like, oh, yeah, I like this girl. She's like, she says she works out, but, you know, she's not really buff, but whatever. And this is the nerd and people like her. So you feel like enough interest that when they get their deaths, you feel a little bad and you root for them a little bit. And that's why I love that Dream Warrior has left a few of them alive, which this doesn't really do in the same way because the hunk is like not a real character and nope. doesn't, doesn't do anything throughout the course of the movie <laughs> but he is quite hunky <laughs> very much yeah, you know he is and, handsome and in the 80s he's playing against stereotype yeah he's a nice jock like that character in every other 80s movie is a jock asshole and in this That's one true. it's you know he's fine yeah, yeah insofar <laughs> as he has any personality but Right in the beginning, my boyfriend was impressed and glad that, like, the, the buff girl and the nerdy girl, he thought the buff girl was going to be mean to her. But they're all friends. Yeah. And, yep. Like, you're like, okay, well, I like these characters because 
they seem relatively human and likable and they all get along even if they are cut from different cloths whereas yeah in like the average friday the 13th or something they would just be assholes to each other and yeah you wouldn't care when they die speaking to the writing real quick there's something i realized uh watching this again is that this could have gone so differently based on the logic and choices they made so we have it starting off with freddie has really honestly inexplicably come back just for the hell of it uh, <laughs> why not you know <laughs> And he takes out the last of the Elm Street kids. Kristen makes the mistake of bringing in Alice, which now makes her fair game to Freddy. Now, that arguably she might not have been able to change. It was something she's kind of forced into. But then she makes the conscious decision to give her <laughs> power to Alice. So instead of Alice just kicking it, you know, next night, you know, and being the last victim in this being over, now Alice just continues the bloodshed. Yes. <laughs> gets so many people killed by saying, you're going to need my power. And no, she does. And I, no. You just ensured a lot of other people get killed. I'm going to save your life. I'm going to kill a ton of other people. But you, you're going to live because I like you. <laughs> so I, I, I had never seen this. and. That was the moment where my first watch of this, it was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> it, it, it was one of those moments where like, because you see what's about to happen. And it just, I wouldn't say it made me mad, but it made me feel like I was going to really hate the rest of this movie. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't particularly like this film. I'll, I'll say, well, let me say this. So the first time I watched it, I got about 40 minutes, an hour in and, and I was not, a fan. in fact, I wore a shirt tonight. This would describe how I felt about it. <laughs> says, I wish that this would end. Uh, Trapper Shope show, you can buy it on uh, Trapper Show's Bandcamp, and I, it's useful for every situation, let me tell you. <laughs> but it, it's how I felt about 40 minutes into this movie the first time I watched it through. Now, I was probably compromised. The Sixers were in the midst of a, like a five-game losing streak. I was in a bad mood just all the time when I watched it. So, oh, my God. So... Look, I'm just being honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when I watched it again, so last night I was at the, the Philadelphia Union game, and they, they won in one of the more spectacular fashions you'll ever see to go to the conference finals. Uh, so I've been in a pretty good mood all day, and I'm like, I'm going to rewatch this movie. And I was I watched it while I was exercising, so I had endorphins going, and, you know, the Union, and I'm like, this movie's not that bad. So I was just completely compromised. Doing chest presses so like, what's going on the, on uh, the weight me? bench. Like, uh, the no, I, was, I, I watched this whole thing on an elliptical today, which is a weird-ass way to watch a Freddy movie, let me tell you. But See, I, th I think you literally, like, put yourself in a position to approach it from the two sides. Like, when you were bummed out and whatnot, you're just like, this sucks, it's awful, look at the writing, it's terrible. And then you got something all hyped up, you're like, woo! Cut that thing in half. Do it. <laughs> so the, the first one, look, look, I, I would say that this is objectively a bad film, you know, in terms of structure, logic, what it's doing. All right. Objectively is probably the wrong word there. Subjectively. <laughs> yeah. I'm frowning heavily for, for the uh, listeners at home. I get a lot of this from Nick and Eric, honestly. But <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's because it's, you know what it, it made me kind of think of? And this is, is a weird comparison, but it's what I kept thinking about was VHS 1984. Whereas this framing structure around it that's kind of loose and not really super well structured and just these bits, you know, and each one is like, oh, now he, the karate champ is on an elevator and we're going to get a scene with that. And it's just it's this series of ironic deaths over and over again that end with a quip. Then you come back to the framing sequence a little bit and then, you, you know, you finally get the end. 
and it's all you know logic free but within that structure i mean like so obviously it's these are just not tailored for me the pretentious one as we discovered um (laughs) but it's entertaining in what it does like nick said the writing is bad but the execution is very good i was gonna jump in and say as a fan of this movie i actually do think you you hit it on the head there which is that this is the first one that does just feel like a a theme park ride to the next death yes because the deaths in the first one are are you know shocking and tragic in the second one are very thematically sound with the movie you're watching and the third one uh, you care more even more about these kids and they do a better job of setting up their fears and paranoias so yep. and the third one also has the unpredictability of not knowing who is going to survive or not which this one does away with because everyone everyone who enters a dream dies until the final girl so this one is the one that is kind of the most loosely held together and when i was reading about it they had already started special effects work before they confirmed the director. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. it is as, as literally as possible. It is a sequence of deaths held together by a plot after the fact. Absolutely. And I, I read that the director for Friday the 13th six, which is my favorite far and away. My favorite Friday the 13th was approached and turned it down for that reason, because new line was not going to offer him much control over what the final product was. They kind of had in their mind what they wanted to do already. As uh, Tom McLaughlin, right? Yeah, I think Jason Lives is like the most entertaining and, and best of the franchise. But that that's fun. I was the the Blu-ray set for Nightmare on Elm Street has two episodes of the Freddy's Nightmares, and he does the second one, hmm. which features a very young John Cameron Mitchell, who's also in Book of Love. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Who wrote that? I'm the only one amused by this joke, but I'm going to keep making it. I can sing it because they sing it in the film. <laughs> That's but, true. <laughs> but what I'll say to Steve, what you just mentioned, uh, Haley Piper joined us for our discussion of Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. And one thing she mentioned was that, you know, how emotional she got watching that movie. And to the point that it, she teared up at the, you know, one of the first deaths when, when, the kid is being puppeteered by his ligaments yeah, and, that's and, yeah. and all the other kids are trying so hard, you know, to save him that it actually brought her to tears. The connection gut wrenching. This is the movie where it feels like the audience reactions to the deaths pivot from previously being, <gasps> whereas now they're, Oh, and it's <laughs> potentially even get him. <laughs> where, it's, where it's pivoting from horror to spectacle. Yeah. But what spectacle? And, and and to that end, like one of I think probably the first thing I wrote when I finished watching this was it, it is not my favorite in the series, but if there was a Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective with, you know, like playing in a theater and I was told you can go watch one of them, this is the one I would go watch because this is the one I want to watch with a crowd. Fair. This is a spectator sport. Yeah, I mean this would be my fourth choice for one to watch. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say again, like, I think it's really the writing is what fails the cast in that respect, because they got a great assemblage of young people to play these characters. And yes, you can see the potential in a lot of them. And the writing is just not there. And that's what separates this from Dream Warriors, where those kids all interact with each other. And these kids, apart from a very small amount of banter, they feel so isolated from one another. And each time one of them dies, there's almost no effect on the world. Like yep. the the nerd dies in class and no one even freaks out that much. They're just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, shocking. Okay, well, <laughs> the, your test is due in 10 minutes. So let's get yeah. on with it. 
Yeah, there's a crowd of students around the ambulance as they wheel her out. <laughs> all the way like, up to the I door. Feel- <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And and even things as simple as, like, Sheila gets this, like, Ghostbusters contraption when it's like it could have just been oh, the inhaler. So- like, they could have stolen that directly from Stephen King's It and just had, like, the inhaler be an object of power in the dream instead of giving her, like, some science fiction contraption. Or, and that like, robot arm belonged to a different movie. <laughs> completely completely and and the little thing she makes does too or why um you know De- debbie's the buff girl right yes like why she's like the workout girl but she dresses like a punk rock girl and mm-hmm. she's not buff and it's like the, the elements <laughs> don't line up and the fear of bugs is just really thrown in there it, it's very much a movie where they it feels like they worked backward from the kills they devised yes definitely but they didn't do as successfully as they did in dream warriors no uh, you mentioned the robot arm that was one of the things i was particularly curious about it was like was there something else in the script that built up to this uh and there's not but the one thing I'll mention is that that particular device is described, the robot arm is described verbatim in the script as, quote, mechanical beastie type claw thing <laughs> as what comes up. <laughs> out of the so well done. Yeah, fairly accurate. Yeah. I If you look at the first three movies, like you mentioned, the, the kills are to a degree somewhat infrequent. Like the only three people die in the first one and the second one, nobody dies for. 45 minutes into that film something like that yeah you know and in this one it's like punching a clock it's like oh it's been five <laughs> minutes better off somebody next i remember when uh the actor who played kincaid was interviewed about this he's like yeah i told people i was in this film i told them don't get popcorn yeah. don't get a soda <laughs> whatever you do just get in that theater as fast as possible or you may miss me <laughs> yeah, like my favorite thing about dream warriors is kincaid survives and this one just tidies that up right away it's like yep. oh come on man you know, and then they, they have Dwayne Davis in it briefly, and then he's not in it again. And I'm like, oh, that was exciting for one half second. Uh, we have to talk about Kincaid's dog and his role in this movie, though, because oh it is, my God. it's the most confusing part, but also kind of awesome. The most perplexing part yes. uh, that the dog just pisses fire and awakens Freddy. <laughs> my, my boyfriend and I were cracking up because we're like, that dog was probably adopted from the Kruger household. He was like, <laughs> Must be. fuck you, kids. I'm, I'm getting Freddy back. Uh, <laughs> he attacks Kristen, too, and it, it's confusing. Yeah. It's an evil dog. <laughs> it's great to listen to people talk about it because, like, everyone's like trying to explain it after the fact. <laughs> it's like, like, oh, that was a uh, uh, hellhound. Yeah, that's it. Because you know he's so hell based. Yeah, we established in Paranormal Activity, cats are down with Toby, the ghost from that, and in this franchise. <laughs> Border Collies love Freddy Krueger. So. Yeah, I, I wrote a book about very nice dogs in the yeah. afterlife, and yeah. this this is an evil dog. <laughs> <laughs> that dog said, fuck them kids. This is the twisted mirror to Rainbow Bridge. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it was, it's just, it's so confusing early on. But like, like you know, I've, I've had a UTI and I hate kids, so I can kind of relate to the dog. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> but at the same time, it's just, it doesn't, it, there's no context that any of it makes sense. Nope. No. Because it's done for the visual. It's not done for the logical or the story. It's like, this will look cool. And but I, I hope they work that film. one back from the start. It's like, what visual do we need? Dog piss and fire? Well, how are we going to work that in? Oh. Not my job. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> but then again, this is a perfect film for this. It's like, I just want things to look cool. Well, how do we get these cool things put in? They're all dreams. Fuck it. You know? And <laughs> <laughs> And that's what you get here. You get a, a collection of various, oh, this will be cool, let's do it moments that work because of the dream format. 
I'm just, it's fascinating to me that this is absolutely the best introduction of Freddy in the first four. Like, it, it is cool the way they kind of bring him back. But it all starts with the dog pissing fire. So it's like, how I can't make this work in my head. But, you know, him coming together and the flesh coming over and him standing up and grabbing the hat. I like grabbing the hat. That was just a nice little touch. Yeah, I was going to say the actual reconstitution effect. One of my favorite movies of all time is Hellraiser. And yes. when Frank comes back, it, it's, it's just so like good. stunning work of special effects that looks so much better than, you know, anything that's ever been accomplished with CGI. That this first scream? Oh. Yeah. This isn't quite as good, but the reconstitution is really strong in this movie, too. It's just so funny that it follows a dog pissing fire. Yeah. I, I, crack me up after the reconstitution bit where it, it randomly cuts to the shot of Freddy out of the pit where it does this big lead up with him casting the shadow and they frame him like John Wayne at the end of the searchers standing in the doorway. <laughs> but what I appreciated was going back and, and rewatching it was they frame the dog the same way. When Kincaid is going to sleep, there's the bit where his door opens and the dog casts the long shadow. I was like, okay, that was pretty well put together. Evil dog. Yeah, just like that. And, and Freddie gives you that whole Bob Fosse leg kick there, the yep. way he's standing in that. It's just great. Oh, we're going to have Bob Fosse stuff to talk about, but not until Freddie's dead. <laughs> I, I feel like there's a 20 minute short waiting to be made, you know, about how the dog is the whole reason Freddie came back, <laughs> top to bottom, where he came from, how he got connected to Kincaid. You know, there's money to be made here. <laughs> like, like, if the dog is actually a demon, this whole fucking movie makes more sense. You know, he he burns off the uh, the holy water with his, you know, fire piss, and that allows Freddie to come back. It's very, uh, in the old Star Wars expanded universe, they had those like tales from Mos Eisley Cantina and tales from Jabba's Palace. It's like tales <laughs> yep. from Elm Street would have a, a novella about this demon dog. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, the dog is named Jason. So yeah, which I have to assume was a fairly obvious nod because who oh, else yeah. names a dog Jason? <laughs> like uh-huh. that falls in such a weird, uncanny valley for like human names for animals. Agreed. And, and yeah, it, going as far as they named the diner, you know, the Crave Inn. So yeah, I mean that's the degree ah. of, of on the nose. And and to that end, going to what Jake was saying earlier, before we went into this recording, just based on my vague memories, I was like, all right, Jake's probably going to really dislike Dream Master. But after our discussion of the second one, I said, well, maybe there's Union a chance one, so I he didn't. loves it because <laughs> one of the things you mentioned about why you loved the second one was it had it this persistent, surreal, dreamlike quality. And this movie is entirely on planet Harlan because <laughs> yeah. to the point that you know there is a sequence where they go to visit the Elm Street house. Kristen's mother is just magically there. Honks at her to leave, and then just leaves without her. That is one script oh, that is better. She peels yeah. off she, like we were squealing tires. Our minds. It's so funny. But she doesn't want her daughter to get in the car and then just get away from that house. Goodbye. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. And this, in in the script, she does. She says, "Get in the car." So at least it makes somewhat more functional sense at that point. I don't even know why they're there. But then there's the bit where you know she puts the sleeping pills in Kristen's drink in the subsequent scene to get her to sleep, and. I, I hadn't really looked until watching it the second time and looking at the glass. The amount of sediment at the bottom of that yeah. glass <laughs> is absurd. And when she chucks the pill bottle, I counted. There are 19 pills that land on the dining room table. So assuming that was a 30-pill count, there are 11 pills that were crushed up and put in that. She is trying to kill her daughter. It works. And then when Kristen gets yeah. upset and decides to you know leave and her mother's yelling after her, 
is really upset that her daughter's, you know, gone upstairs, but not mad enough to go all the way up the stairs. She stops halfway <laughs> because presumably Kristen has put a line of salt at the top of the stairs that her mother can't cross. <laughs> That, that scene with Kristen bouncing around her room, clearly looking for something, is is confusing to me because in the end, what she's looking for is her phone. And I'm sorry, in the '80s, a teenage girl not knowing where her phone was, bullshit. <laughs> Just a teenager. Look, I was glued to the phone too. I don't want to be sexist about it. I like the disorienting camera work on that scene, yeah. though. It's like it's not as good as oh, the overhead the, uh, shot. The, is, yeah, is so yeah. Good. It's actually like it, yeah. My boyfriend was like, "Oh, Malignant just did this," yep. and it is it's, yeah. it's similar to that. Yeah, yeah the it's a nice effect. Shot and it's all one take. Yep, I uh, love it. And then she's trying to telephone her friend, who she then brings into the dream and kills me, or tries to kill me. <laughs> you know? It's just nice to see movies. The thing about the entire nightmare franchise is it takes place before like CGI ruined horror for a while anyway. Fair. And it's just nice to see, even in like these movies that are clearly not great films, it's nice to see things done in camera with cameras, Mm -hmm. with real lights. Like even that ridiculous fight in the kitchen that you were, or the dining room that you were just talking about. I paused it and I was, I told my boyfriend, I was like, do you see what's in this that is not in modern movies? And he's like, what? I was like, a lighting source yeah like, yep. <laughs> we, we watched jungle cruise the other day and not, not a single thing in that movie <laughs> takes place in a physical space and like it's fun for what it is don't get me wrong but like no one in that movie touched a, a grain of dirt mm-hmm. nope <laughs> so just seeing like light streaming in through the windows i was like ah this sustains me <laughs> <laughs> practical effects go a long way they're prettier they, they clearly have more work behind them they end up having more quality more interest and they hold up you know it's cgi only gets worse and worse with time the roach though the roach scene I mean, that looks terrifying yes. like oh, if yeah. you if you are afraid of bugs like you're gonna lose it at that it looks so real despite this being done you know 30 years ago oh it's fantastic so kind of in a, in a different vein i was kind of curious about the production did anybody read anything about like how long the production went versus the release date. I know they're edging up on like two weeks before the uh, release. And they're still doing work. Yeah, and it's even shorter for five. Uh, so I know that that five has an even shorter window of time. Well, well, I ask because the release date for this film was August nineteenth, nineteen eighty eight. So the scene where, and obviously I don't remember the character's name. The the one the not Kincaid, but the other one who came Joey Joey Joey, where he dies. He's reading Rolling Stone in bed while listening to music and watching MTV, which is a little heavy handed, even for the 80s. <laughs> and I looked up the issue that he's reading, and it's the June 30th, 1988 issue, which is five weeks yep. from <laughs> release date. Yep. And it's also like, come on, you got all these songs in this and the one you go with is the Tom Hanks cover. Well, <laughs> just grab a different Rolling Stone, man. That was almost going to be a contest where we were going to give away a copy of that issue, but I couldn't find one that looked good enough on eBay. So you just have to stick with the cat <laughs> cards. Yeah, we'll have people. to stick with the, the cat photo cards from the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Don't forget to DM us if you want those and we'll do a drawing or something fun, whatever. So I, there's two things I wanted to give credit to in this movie. So I said already not watching this right after three made Tuesday night look better because I was just able to judge her on her own. Mm-hmm. Respect. The other thing is I remembered not loving the handoff from Kristen to Alice so quickly. And that's kind of like, that's an issue throughout franchise horror is that like, you know, nightmares got this amazing Heather Langenkamp trilogy, 
So you've got that. That's like the most consistency that any of these movies have. And Friday and, and Halloween, they have this issue of just constantly handing off the final girl hat. Yep. And it actually it worked better for me watching it on its own than it did when I was watching one through seven straight through. Mm. Where I was like, I really just wanted more Kristen, even if you had to recast. Like, why would you get rid of her so fast? But I do like Alice's gradual transformation. Again, I don't think the writing was where it could be. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, now she tied her hair back. She's cool now. Like, oh, I, love, I love that whole scene with her putting on all the 80s fashion, like armor. Yeah. It's just the best. It was not as uh, perfectly conceived as it could be, but I do think that the actress who plays Alice does a good job of subtly changing throughout the movie. So I want to give credit to that. I also want to call out one of my favorite sequences in these early movies, which is where Alice and the hunk realize they're caught in a loop. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. that's a great moment. Because what I love about this franchise and where I think it like gets as high as it gets in the horror genre is that knife's edge between waking and dreaming. Mm-hmm. And the, the first movie has the best examples of this. Like yes. the classroom sequence when Nancy wakes, like realizes uh, she's asleep, is yes. is terrifying. Like yes. I put that up there with like the Exorcist three um, head chop. It's like <laughs> oh yes. The, the body bag in the hallway getting dragged away, I think, is like one of the most iconic images in horror to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the rest of the franchise never gets that high. But I think the loop really taps into dream logic in a cool way. Yes. You know, it's maybe a little funnier than it could have been, but it's still <laughs> cool to see them figure out a different way to do it than just like, okay, here's a character nodding off and now they're waking up and realizing that they're asleep. Mm-hmm. So I did want to mention that that's one of my favorite tactics that this movie used. Nice. And the roach, like we talked about, is just <laughs> highest echelon of Freddy kills. It's funny when we talked about Dream Warriors and talking about the Craven Wagner draft before Chuck Russell, and Frank Darabont did rewrites. It's the deaths in that are it, it's just so graphic. It's like there's no way, there's <laughs> no way they would have been able to get away with these. And there's one of those in this movie with. I, I am shocked that they got away with Debbie doing the face plant and just peeling up and just the rest of her kind of sloughing off and just the roast. So good. I, was, I am shocked you got away with that in 88. Yeah. I actually forgot about that too. I, I forgot that that's how she transforms fully into the bug. And it's, it's really a shocking moment. Cause you think for a second that her face is going to peel and just like as a, as a fleshy corpse, but then it goes like full metamorphosis. It's so good. Apparently, I read that no, they did not have a body double come in. That that was her in the makeup, top to bottom. Even <laughs> yeah. when she was in full roach form, she was wow. like, "Oh my god!" She was like, "My biggest problem was it was just so damn slippery." Like every time she's <laughs> every time she's standing up, she's struggling. <laughs> I really felt for her having the face plant because I don't know what that goo really was, but I can't oh. imagine that was pleasant at all. Nope, 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 nope. nope. One thing I'll mention, Steve, with you talking about Alice's arc throughout the film is from a script perspective on that one, there's not much in there that's not in the finished film. Uh, it, it does establish a couple like lines here or there. And there's the bit where she's suiting up to go in uh, as the dream master <laughs> in the final sequence. A. And in that it's described as a little bit more surreal. Like her look is, we get a bit of it in this, you know, she puts the, the wrist bracelet on and all of a sudden the studs are, significantly longer than they were when she was given you know, the bracelet, but there was a lot more of that. Um, she also has a shotgun originally, 
and then she pumps <laughs> and then she goes, oh, I guess I don't need this. And she tosses it aside before she goes through the, uh, the mirror. There was, well, that was a good, cut. that was a good, cut. <laughs> there, there was only one bit with her really that was cut as far as a build for her character, which was the, all the various elements with her dad was there was a Freddy sequence with her father. He was supposed to die, right? Uh, he, uh, at least in this draft, he doesn't die. But there is a bit earlier. He transforms. Yeah. yeah, where he's where she's sitting in the dining room and he's talking to her and he's you know saying basically you know hey, I'm sorry I'm such a mess and he shuts the refrigerator door and he has this oversized like comically oversized martini glass and he starts bleeding from the eyes where it's basically like it says basically take the the physical symptoms of extreme alcohol intoxication and take them turn them up to 11 and that's what he's got and there's a bit where she snaps away from that but oh the only other thing you just reminded me too is uh my boyfriend and i were cracking up at robert england and drag for i can't believe i forgot about that so i mean we're such big drag fans and seeing that like i had totally forgotten and that nurse turning around and being robert england i we were cracked. My boyfriend was like, he wanted the acrylics. He wanted the makeup. Like, yep. he wanted Give the fantasy. Me. I want all of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> His nails are fabulous it in is that bit. so funny. And he kind of looks like Heath Ledger yes. as the Joker when he does that. Someone yes. tweeted two months ago that said, Dream Master is the inspiration for the Dark Knight. And I had no idea what the context <laughs> is. said. I would, we're going to be doing Dream Master soon, so I guess I'll find out. And when we got that bit, it was, how do I not remember this? I <laughs> so funny. Her dad has probably the, the most confusing line in the film for me, talking about him a little bit. It's like almost his, you know, one of his first lines where they're leaving for school, and he says, you're going out dressed like that, and she's dressed yes. like she's Amish. I mean, it's... <laughs> there's one more what? line there in the script where he says something like, oh, maybe, because when uh, Kristen says she's leaving, he says, Maybe you can teach my daughter a thing or two about clothing or something like that. There's there's one offhand line. Yeah, the only way to interpret it is that he is like being sassy and deconstructing her yes. outfit. Like yeah. you're going out like that. Like, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> like I, the, the the sweaters to people ratio in this versus what it actually was in the '80s still seem high to me. <laughs> like all four of these movies, everybody's always in a sweater. I'm like, I look, I remember back then. I look, I owned a sweater, maybe two. <laughs> But this is just constant sweater wearing in all of these. Freddy's a trendsetter. I I guess. I yeah, yeah, the two other quick script notes I'll mention real quick in, in terms of things that perplexed us. One that perplexed me, it's really random, but it was the beach sequence where Kristen dies, and there's the bit with the girl building the sandcastle. And then all of a sudden, Freddy, you know, does the bit with the shark fin, goes up to the sandcastle <laughs> and explodes, and, and suddenly he's there. And I was like, it's interesting they did a sandcastle setup just to have him, you know, blow it up in this this little sequence. But there was originally a little bit more to that because originally do. when he rolls up to the sandcastle, all of a sudden the sandcastle, it, it's not a castle anymore. It's the Elm Street house. Mm. And then it explodes. So it was a little bit there. But then I just needed that scene. I needed a the dog to be on a surfboard following him. Like <laughs> hanging 10 on a <laughs> hanging 10, of... you know. <laughs> The dog's like, I love hell, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Freddie then puts on the Ray-Bans, and he has a line to Kristen in that bit where he says, time to turn or else you'll burn, and then he starts you know, approaching her. But there's one bit I really liked, which is it notes he, he raises his claw above her, and as the shadow of his hand passes over her skin, her skin starts to blister in the shadow. 
Ooh, which I thought was a really nice. cool image if they could have pulled it, yeah. you know, the reverse light effect where it's shadow that blisters yes. the skin on the beach, which I thought was nifty. But speaking of the dog, the one thing I did want to mention was the script originally has a slightly longer ending. So here's how the ending was originally written. Alice looks into the fountain's pool. The water is smooth because it, it ends with Alice and Dan at, at dropping the coin into the fountain. For a moment, Freddy's reflection floats up to the surface. Dan tosses his coin in. The water ripples. Alice watches the water reform. When it does, Freddy's reflection is gone. Dan, what did you wish for? Alice just looks at Dan without speaking, a confused expression on her face. As they walk off, a dog runs up and begins licking and drinking water from the pool. It's Kincaid's dog, the dog from Freddy's resurrection. Suddenly, an impossibly long snake-like Freddy tongue emerges from the dog's mouth and licks from the fountain. Disappears back into the dog's mouth. We freeze on its face, staring directly at us. Cut to black. Which I thought was interesting for two reasons. One is the repeated imagery, which we've talked about in previous movies, of the long Freddy tongue that they find a way to fit in in all the previous ones. Not as much here. We do get a, a Freddy tongue waggling bit at one point, yes. but not the you know comically large one. But I love that it was originally supposed to end on a dog freeze frame looking directly yeah, into the barrel of the camera. I'm obsessed that they really wanted this dog to be the fucking devil. <laughs> like, yep. Yep. They're like, no, this is a movie about an evil dog. <laughs> They they were spit. They were gonna do a spinoff, man. It's like Dead Bud or something. I, <laughs> oh. That would have been awesome. Cut that. That's my next book. Dead Bud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm claiming it. Cut the audio. <laughs> Unofficial companion to I'm Rainbow saying, Bridge. You gotta do that twisted sequel to Rainbow Bridge. Hell Bridge. <laughs> Well, at least, you know, if they go and visit them in the, the graveyard, everybody's buried within two feet of each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I always try to give these movies, like, I, I want to go into even the, the wonkiest of 80s horror movies, like, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Like, I'm not the watcher who's, like, waiting to laugh at things, but that unintentional comedy of everyone from the franchise just being buried in a row. Oh my gosh. <laughs> maybe one of the, the second funny, the funniest thing I think uh, you mentioned earlier, like when her mom just drives up, it's like, get away from there and then speeds Zoom. away. We were also just cracking up at the fact that this house still looks like that in this like bougie neighborhood, yes. like across <laughs> the street, across the street mansions. And they're like, Oh yes, honey. Uh, as you can see, the the Kruger house is still there, boarded up like the haunted mansion from Disney. Someone would have tore that sucker down. I'm just instantly, saying. instantly. Yeah. Like, yeah, these no people way. in this neighborhood are pretty good at burning shit, man. That house yeah. is not standing up. Well, what's funny? Too, it like, just cracked me. You up. Mentioned in the original Dream Warriors script, there was the bit where it took place at the house where Freddy was born, which was a different house in a completely different city. And then in the rewrites, they transplanted that to the Elm Street house, and this house becomes so iconic. That it's just synonymous with Freddy, which is particularly funny because it's not his house. It's <laughs> particularly the second movie where he's basically just haunting this house, and and it becomes so intrinsically tied, you know, to the point that I loved in the beginning of this one. He's renovated it because when she first goes in, he's put up curtains, he's put up, he's done a moldy paint job. It's he's all about this house all of a sudden. And then the finale doesn't even take place there. No, it's in some random church for some reason. I, I assumed that was like a tie to his mom, right? But they don't really explain it. Uh, no, they don't. And they don't in the script either. It's just in a church. I think it's so they can do the, because um, it specifically describes the, the, the Elm Street kids being in a choir formation. Oh, So it's sure, probably yeah. that and probably just leftover imagery again, because three had such a strong religious undercurrent such to a, it. 
backwards way of writing this whole movie. Yes. And they really came up with things and then worked backward to kind of fit them in. And it, the the ending, just to talk about that a little bit, is confusing to me. It's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like once per movie, this guy's jumping through a mirror. And, you know, what she does is says a little rhyme and shows him his reflection and he blows up. I mean, what the fuck? What? It's like they thought about the ending last second and made it up on the fly. It, my boyfriend asked me to explain that, too. And I was like, uh, shrug. I don't know. Because she's like, evil sees itself and is defeated. And then he's like, oh, you got me. <laughs> that rhyme was so bad, I'm dead now. I mean, This, again, comes down to my dichotomy issue with this film. Because her going, I remember a nursery rhyme, and now I can defeat you with a piece of glass, is disgusting. Dumbest sucking! Oh my god, it just pisses me off to no end. But then he goes through this transformation of all the souls ripping themselves out of his body, which is badass. I mean, it's just really well done. They have all these like little mini bodies coming out of him with like remote control, and then they have the giant rig for Linnea Quigley pushing through. It's they, like I have a goddamn hand pop out of his head and rip his jaw open. I mean, it's like, oh, chef's kiss. You know, it's just so good, but it comes from such bullshit. Oh my god! It's basically the same ending as Ghost. There is one bit cut from the ending, which is it's not from the church bit. It's from right after the surgery sequence, but before the kaleidoscopic hallway, which I'll read for one specific reason. And this won't take long. Alice and Dan turn around and run for the doors. This is in Dan's operation room. Just as they get to them, Freddy throws them open from the other side. On instinct, Dan leaps in front of Alice to confront Freddy. He grabs Dan's fist, holds his arms out, and slashes Dan, once, twice across the chest. Blood spurts, but it's only superficial damage. Alice grabs the sharper of the surgical instruments and turns on Freddy. Alice, I'll mail your guts back to hell! Alice starts to hurl the instruments at Freddy Kung Fu style with blurring speed and accuracy. Rick would be proud. Alice nails Freddy once, a dozen times in the span of a few seconds. Freddy doubles over, sharp instruments sticking out of every part of him. Alice advances on him and delivers a massive sharp kick to Freddy's balls. Freddy makes a sound that a banshee would flee from. Alice grabs Dan and the two plunge through the doors. So I mentioned that is because we've had a running bit from the beginning of Freddy getting hit in the junk, which doesn't carry over to this film, but you almost had it, Jake. You almost had so it. Close. <laughs> so close. Would it would have moved this up in the rankings for me, I gotta tell you. <laughs> that the whole surgery scene is fucking weird too. It's like he's hemorrhaging. Wake him up. Hey, we woke you up, buddy. You're better. What? <laughs> <laughs> he's also he's I, I understand they had to do it because they, you know, they didn't want to make a prop of him like open but he's fully wrapped on the operating table and then starts bleeding and it's like i think you guys got a little premature here (laughs) you you didn't finish the job you're like oh we did this out of order oh the sutures damn it i knew i forgot something (laughs) that whole thing with the the ending needing to have a ticking clock element is fascinating when like when dan gets to the hospital and she asks the doctor he is literally just being wheeled past her and she says how long did he operate he's 15 minutes yeah. instantly and she because <laughs> and it's so she can time you know they're gonna have her time the uh the suit up sequence i will say but let's be clear here about that that means she has 15 minutes to leave the hospital mm-hmm. get to her house which i doubt is next door <laughs> and then like suit up and be ready for this like what the hell <laughs> No, because the neighborhood around hospitals are never particularly good for reasons I don't understand sociologically, but it's true. And these are all upper middle class kids, so. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, 
Kirsten's house is like gigantic. Yeah, she, she My boyfriend was like, wait, <laughs> she's that wealthy? Well, I love that they're in Kristen's house on the wealth thing, that her house is so massive that there is a raging inferno on the second floor. <laughs> and her mother does not go upstairs until people two people knock on her door and say, hey, you know, your house is on fire. Chin <laughs> is a hell of a drug. That was something I assumed there was a scene in the script about that. There's not. They show up, they knock, and then she's upstairs. <laughs> That's amazing. So one thing I, I liked about this, it, it, oddly enough, is that there's a little bit more attention to detail in some things. Like in Joey's room, you know, this is supposed to be set in Ohio, and this is the first one that has any trappings of Ohio. Like Joey's got an Eric Davis poster who played for the Cincinnati Reds. I'm like, oh, okay, so they're pretending, and the license plates are right. Nice. It's not just a bunch of California license plates. There are Ohio <laughs> license plates in this, so I appreciated that. But I, speaking of posters, I have to ask you, Eric. Mm -hmm. I assume this was going to be your the scariest one for you because in Kristen's room, there's a Garfield poster and I thought <laughs> yes. that, wow. that might be triggering for you when yes. you saw it. No, it was specifically Garfield in the rough. It's if, if there's a cartoon Panther, that's where I have issues. It was the so, doesn't carry over to all Garfield. Then. No, all no, right. no, no, that's nope. good. Nope, nope, <laughs> no, no. I, I had to muscle through some trauma to use those Garfield phones as a kid, but yeah, I, 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 <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, this, uh, I, I <laughs> for this particular, what to say? I, I think for this one, this one for me, you've said you're speechless. It's just that magnificent. It's a film that has the fat boys playing over the credits. I mean, that's almost the only thing you need to tell somebody. With Freddie rapping, <laughs> yeah, that was my yep. bit in terms of Freddie Krueger rapping. Where we talk about Freddie becoming a mainstream icon, there is no more bigger definition of mainstream icon than halfway through the end credits hearing. Fred Krueger's the name, you know my game. Elm Street's a place, if you got the time, listen to this, you'll bust a rhyme. So, yeah, it just in short, it's when they, the shorthand for the MTV nightmare is, is incredibly apt. For me personally, just the, the aspects of the Elm Street series that I like more, again, I, I tend to gravitate towards the more horror elements of it, but I have a blast with this version of Freddy, Freddy as, as the pop culture icon. So for me, the movie is more... I think it's more fun than I think it's good, but I, I do think it's good. And I do think it's a lot of fun. It is pretty relentlessly entertaining just because again, of that, it feels like a multi-million dollar audition tape that every single scene on some level is, is so visually striking in some way, you know, with, with all the in-camera effects, fun performances, again, the lighting and everything that's going on. They talk in the never sleep again, about being influenced by um, a Chinese ghost story, which came out in the 80s, the uh, uh, Chong Si Dong film, which is mentioned specifically in the script when Rick dies and goes down to the area where, where he has the fight with the Invisible Freddy. It's described as a pristine, clean Chinese room a la living quarters in Chinese ghost story. It says that in the script. The Tommy Matt's <laughs> white and colored screams open light and airy. It's not Chinese. <laughs> so it just shows that, you know, smashing all Asian culture together that happened, I guess, in the late 80s. But I thought it was yeah, interesting. My boyfriend was like, Karate Kid was bigger on this time, right? Oh, I was yeah. like, yes, this oh, yeah. this was the era of Karate Kid and, and ninjas and uh, pan-Asian fascination. <laughs> she has an awakening moment to use in nunchucks, man. That, that was great. <laughs> 
Which then she does not use in the finale. No, not at all. Which was not great. <laughs> Just their ability to to prove that. I mean, look, we, I, I know we're winding down, so we can't talk a lot about the uh, invisible Freddy fight. But oh, uh, I'm boy, happy to talk oh boy, about the invisible can. Freddy fight. Boy, oh boy, did they use their budget elsewhere? I guess because. Making that poor actor fight Invisible Freddy for three minutes and then just getting stabbed in the stomach is maybe one of the worst deaths in the entire franchise. That whole death scene was added on after the fact. Like, originally it was supposed to be this, like, really kind of brutal elevator death. Right, like I read about that. Put, that. The walls break away and he just falls to his doom. And they're like, that's a bit expensive. And so <laughs> they end up just getting a room and having him fight himself. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> it, it is it might be the most 80s moment in the entire film either that or his train you know his training sequence in the beginning ah yeah but i mean it's yeah karate kid jim kata uh little three little ninjas what was that movie called uh, there's just three ninjas and three ninjas pocket ninjas so it could be that yeah. but it, like well, everything I mean, was martial arts around that gi joe power rangers this whole era was like yep. fascinated yeah I had nunchucks. Did you? My mom's chagrin. Oh, yeah. My brother and I, we used to, we had these nunchucks that had like a foam covering on them, which, you know, was cute, but it still hurt like hell when your brother hit you in the head and you hit him in the dong. So we had a lot of fight with those. My mom hated them. We had throwing stars. Like the basement wall was just covered of like, you know, little holes from these throwings because they were real, you know, metal. In fact, we used to have those, those um, wrestling figures. The rubber ones that didn't move at the time. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and you know we got we we weren't in wrestling very long, so we just had a pile of these figures we didn't use. So we used to throw ninja stars at them. Made a little game. You hit Andre's giant in the forehead, you get five points. <laughs> I am holding off on the wrestling connection to Freddy Krueger until Dream Child. So you locked out in this discussion. I'm waiting on that. <laughs> I'm going to get to that next time. Yeah, there there are already the uh, the sports references I didn't understand. So wrestling would have really uh, gone over my head. <laughs> It's really left field, but there is one. So. <laughs> oh, Nick hates it when you make a left field reference or connection, Eric. So you gotta you gotta be on the ball with that. <laughs> Eric knows what he's doing. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> we each episode we make a community connection. Increasingly, Nick doesn't like mine. This is like you know, there was this guy who was on a commercial that was like scene on this movie where this guy did the music for i'm like dude oh my god <laughs> i connected sophie b hawkins to the last movie and you complained man i'm done with you <laughs> no i i really enjoy this film for its visuals and for its spectacle i i really wish the writing had met the same level as the production values i think it would have been potentially the greatest of the entire franchise if they had been able to pull that off but it just misses the mark with the story it adds nothing new to the experience but for what it is it's a fun ride yep it's the theme park nightmare and it's fun Mm, yes but it's it's not like an essential part of the the lore the story the arc any of that I just, it's a horror movie that's got Billy Idol, Sinead O'Connor, the Divinals, and the Fat Boys in it. Of course, I'm going to at least be entertained. <laughs> but I, I didn't, and in the end, I didn't hate it, even, you know, sports moods aside. I didn't particularly like it. Like, I don't think it's a good movie, but <laughs> I, it's an entertaining movie. Yeah. And, and we've talked throughout these reviews as we've gone through, because we talked how we all have childhood connections to Freddie mm-hmm. and seeing him evolve as a 
as an icon. And and then you get to this movie, which is what really cements what we're going to go into next or shortly, which is the, the Freddy's Nightmare series where we're going to talk about the pilot for that. But it, that personality is very much cemented in this movie where it feels like, you know, basically anytime Freddy Krueger you know, is, is in a scene and then he suddenly disappears when a character is looking, it's because he's ducked behind a post and he's pulled out his stack of index cards and he's looking through for the next quip he's going to, and then he pops out, ah, you know, reach out and cut someone, you know. I, I would just like in one of these movies for it to spend five minutes with Freddy when kids aren't around. Just like, what's he doing in between things? <laughs> Yeah, because clearly he can't get to other kids unless he has you know some mechanism with the the Dream Master ability. <laughs> so yeah, has, has he's he... playing with his dog. Obviously. Yeah, playing fetch in the boiler room with his border collie. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also making these pop culture references. Like I think he's just at home watching TV like the rest of us. <laughs> like, oh, time to go kill the kids, you know. I mean, like it's... Debbie, he too was watching Dynasty. <laughs> yeah. like, I was supposed to kill that kid last night, but Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe it was all a dream? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the movie's a ton of fun this conversation has been a ton of fun steve thank you so so much for coming on to talk this thank movie you. with us. of course like i said thank you for having me any chance to talk about the nightmare franchise is such a fun opportunity well, let's talk about some of your horror work real quick because uh, one of your most recent ones at least was the original graphic novel party and pray from aftershock which i love the hell out of thank you which yeah. you co-wrote with steve orlando um so who want to talk about the inception of that book a bit yeah absolutely so steve orlando and i've been friends for a long time i first met him because i was i I headed up haste magazine's uh comics journalism side for a couple years and i interviewed him about virgil one of the first things he ever published and we stayed friends after that and we talked a lot about working together we ended up pitching rainbow bridge first because like you said in the beginning a lot of my published work is in the kids field. I've done close to like 60 kids books now across different licenses and originals. So we pitched Rainbow Bridge and we got to talking about horror as well um, because Steve didn't feel as native to the field, but he knew that I I was such a big horror fan and wanted to get more adult work out there. Mm -hmm. So right after we pitched Rainbow Bridge to Aftershock, we're like, hey, we have another idea that's as tonally different as you can get from this, would you be interested in hearing it? And thankfully they approved both. And we, we actually wrote them alternating chapters. So we would turn in 20 pages of Rainbow Bridge, 20 pages of Party and Pray. It was, <laughs> it was really different experience. And Steve and I have done a couple other projects together that are, are not public uh, yet. And every time we've done a book together, we've, we've written it in a slightly different way as co-writers. You know, Rainbow Bridge, I really took the lead because I have more experience in kids, uh, Party and Prey, the story and characters and overall premise originated with me. And then Steve did more of the structural work. And then I did the dialogue. And so hmm. we've done every collaboration a little differently. But yeah, Party and Prey is our queer thriller. It, it is a horror book. I, I I tend to think of it more as a thriller. I don't... It's kind of a unnecessary... Um, dividing line to some folks but to me it's more of like a a breakneck thriller after about the 20 page mark like it really just goes 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 until the end yeah it does and we're inspired by stuff like um cruising the al pacino movie from the 80s Mm -hmm. knife and heart is a more recent oh uh, knife heart is so good amazing 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 like such a big shadow to stand in as a queer horror story 
and also stuff like uh the elizabeth moss invisible man i wasn't mm. like the biggest fan but i think it's got a similar structure it's sort of that like locked house mm-hmm. thriller so yeah we also you know steve and i are both really stubborn um jerks and we like <laughs> there's this tough thing in in any industry and especially in comics where it's easy to get pigeonholed as like any sort of diverse creator and especially in fandom spheres it can be hard sometimes like there's such a need and a desire for positive representation and affirming stories and don't get me wrong i love that like i do think that there's such a big realm for that of course but i also as a gay man want the darker side of gay stories mm. i want stories that where gay characters get to do whatever straight characters get to do so party and pray was our chance to tell kind of like a nastier gay story where we have queer characters who fall all along the moral spectrum and and no one's no one gets out of it looking great some people get out of it looking worse than others <laughs> and that was kind of the, the impetus behind the whole thing. It's like, we want to do kind of our nasty gay thriller. And we end up working with Alex Sanchez on art and Juancho on colors and Hassan on letters. Uh, Hassan and I worked together on so many things. He lettered most of Razor Blades. Mm. So yeah, it was just, it was a blast to write. And I'm really glad we got to do it as an original graphic novel because the structure of the story, you know, we could have broken it up into issues if we needed to, but I think it really was made to be this thing where like i said you get to page 20 or whatever and it does not stop until the end and we we couldn't have done that in single issues there would have had to be more of an ebb and flow to it so i'm glad we got to do it the way we did it well it's it's terrific i really enjoyed it yeah thank you yeah i mean it's we've gotten a really nice reception we were worried about like we were talking about with fandom responses you know we're worried about people saying like oh this portrays the queer community in a bad light or whatever but luckily it seems we've really found our audience who understand what we're trying to do with it and understand that you know no one story needs to represent every facet of the gay community mm-hmm. obviously as queer men we're not saying it's all murderous and bad <laughs> and judgmental <laughs> and i think it helps that steve and i have both done other stories with other angles on queerness so it seems like it's found its its niche and it's really cool to see it's incredibly well done Thank you. Yeah, I really loved it. Uh, You mentioned the line between horror and thriller. We have a running joke on the podcast, which is every time you ask yourself whether it's horror or thriller, Mick Garris busts through the wall like the cool (laughs) man to say it's horror. So So at some point I'll get down to design the Mick Garris Kool-Aid man to sell on our T-Public store. But but yeah, I I enjoyed it. On on the horror end of things, though, mentioned it briefly earlier, really enjoyed the buried somewhere here, the TKO short (laughs) Um, night train which i thought was terrific thank you yeah night train is one of my favorite things i've ever written i was really excited to get that opportunity because i had a stage of my career where as much as i love children's books it felt like um i was hitting a wall of people just not knowing that i had this other side of what i wanted to do and thankfully i've, I've gotten a lot of cool opportunities in the past year some that aren't public yet that have, have helped change that and i really credit night train with a lot of that and it was my chance to do kind of like a a classic Vertigo short. Uh, you know, TKO, it's its own thing. I'm not saying it's not. But that was kind of my homage to like all the Vertigo anthologies of my my youth. Yes. <laughs> like, so good. Though that, that imprint and that era of comics was so formative to me. Everything through the beginning of the line through to the early 2000s. 
So in my mind, I was writing this for something that was going to appear in like a Vertigo anthology. <laughs> and getting to work with um lissandro esterin on art was great gorgeous and the editorial team at tko was so helpful in helping to shape the story because it's very open-ended and i've had people ask like oh what's next and i'm like nothing like that's it the ambiguity is part of the point and getting the opportunity to do short stories i think is too rare in modern comics like in the prose world you have this amazingly prolific audience for short stories especially in horror and in comics it is so hard to get an anthology across mm. and night train happened before james and i created razor blade so obviously i felt there was a burning need and we just went out and did it but to get to do night train in the form it was intended to not have to build it out to a longer pitch or pad it with you know filler to make it fit a certain structure just like go in tell the story and get out was a really gratifying experience it was also much darker originally, and TKO helped helped me find like the fine because it's already a pretty bleak. You know, it's not a happy Very. story. Yeah, <laughs> and the original version was was even worse. So they helped me kind of pull back from the edge, and I think find a better balancing point. Well, you mentioned the Razor Blades anthology, which we've talked about a few times on the pod, particularly our live streams we did with our our local comic shop. Razor Blades has been absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much for thank you for putting yeah. this out. What a who's who of just phenomenal <laughs> creators. You know, we were lucky enough on our Blade review. Danny Lore came on to talk about Blade with us. Love them. Danny's pro story was fantastic. You have, you know, Vita Ayala, Ram V, just so many wonderful creators. Yeah, I was just with Vita yesterday at a friend's engagement party. I mean, James and I got so lucky in creating this for... We really, like, we made it for ourselves. Mm. <laughs> like, the first issue came about at the beginning of quarantine and when publishing kind of ground to a halt for a couple months and you know we were already a couple issues deep in the department of truth but we had no idea when things were gonna start operating more normally and we realized we had a lot of talented friends and peers who had been given like the pencils down order mm -hmm. and we did it all secretly. If you remember, we, we didn't announce the first issue until it was on sale. Yep. There was no lead up. It was just James announcing it on his newsletter. Like, hey, this exists. Surprise. Uh, we beyonce it, as I, I like to say. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was just uh, that first issue especially was our chance to like contact all of our, our friends who we respect and just envy. <laughs> like and get them all in the same book. And it changed so much. You know, the original version was going to be shorter, but we kept wanting to invite more people and the page count ballooned. And then we ended up going to five issues for this first volume. And with each issue, we ended up inviting more and more people that we didn't know personally, but who kept saying yes. And we just were so lucky to have all these people across the industry, including like prose people, horror illustrators, uh, we even had like Go Tanabe, who's a manga creator in Japan. You know, he did an interview for us, which is very rare for manga creators in America. Just the breadth of talent we were able to get was really impressive to us. And it just uh, was a result of us sitting down and saying like, who do you want? Who do you want? Who can we get? Who can we get? So it's been great to see that it's found its audience and, and has a really passionate support base. And then in the spring, we'll have the hardcover out from Image. So. Yeah, awesome. Uh, especially March? Uh, yeah, March for comic shops, April, everywhere. And um, that's very gratifying because we love doing the self-publishing route, but the 
thing we kept hearing from folks who missed out on the subscription or you know who missed the order window is that they wish it was easier to get a hold of and so do we but we can't afford to you know overprint a bunch and we can't afford to just have boxes <laughs> filling up our apartment so when you when you self publish something it's such a careful balancing act of scale of publishing enough to cover the audience you know you have and enough to like reach the audience you hope you can reach but when you self publish you can't just easily print on demand or really overprint so knowing that we're going to have this beautiful handsome hardcover that's going to collect every single thing that was published in the individual issues so that anyone can get their hands on it who wants to is is a really nice feeling that's great yeah i'm still kicking myself for not signing up for the foil covers during that little window i'm still I was like <laughs> yeah. oh, i should have gone for the foils well the other the catch too was you know james and i started this when things slowed down but by the time the first issue came out the publishing industry was back up and going and it was like, oh shit, <laughs> we, have like a, we have a million other things to do because he is so busy and I, you know, I am quite busy. And so we were like, what did we get ourselves into? But we've just been, uh, you know, it's a passion project. It's insane to do. My boyfriend is one who actually puts together each issue, like all the files oh, nice. from all the different creators coming in from, you know, every file type you can imagine and <laughs> people who understand the, the, <laughs> format and people who like are a little liberal with their reading of our, our format requirements and it's it's just such a strange thing that we undertook over the last 18 months but it's been such a, a gratifying and cool project to be a part of yeah thank you for doing it it has been wonderful i was you mentioned jenna cha earlier and i was thumbing through before we started recording you know an issue with the story jenna illustrated that daniel kraus wrote uh, which is, I guess we'll say the, the skincare short, I guess. It's... Yeah, that was hard for me. I, I've had moles removed. Uh, <laughs> oh. and like it, just, it freaks me out. And yeah. I, I give her so much shit about like how hard that one was just to look <laughs> at. <laughs> <laughs> but Jenna's good for art like that. <laughs> like, it's beautiful and, and hard to look at because it's so good. Yeah, we actually picked up uh, one of when Jenna was selling original pieces. There was an unused cover for issue one of Black Stars Above that I've got <laughs> sitting over oh, and I nice. still need to get it framed. But yeah, Jenna's art is just fabulous. It was also, just, I mean, it's just cool to get a chance to work with so many people too. Like editing the project and getting to reach out to so many artists I like and, you know, are on my like bucket list for collaborators and either working with them directly or inviting them to do something of their own was, was such a cool time, even when like the logistics of the project were stressful. No, thank you for, for doing it. It's been terrific. So like you mentioned, there's the print one coming out in the spring for folks who want to read it sooner. Digital copies are available at the Tiny Onion Studios store. So we'll link to it on our Twitter page. Yeah, thank you. And there and the digital copies have always been pay what you want because we wanted the, the flip side of, you know, the logistical drawbacks of self-publishing in print is that we wanted to make sure the book was still accessible. And I know there are folks who just don't care for digital reading i've been all digital for like five years now so i never thought of it but it has always been pay what you want so people can go on you can read the entire thing for free if you want but it's just important <laughs> yeah i mean it's nice if you give us money but you can read it for free because the important thing for us was to get the work out there and make sure as many people were seeing it as possible and to cross-pollinate like another mm -hmm. cool effect of this has been and this is not James and I like taking overdue credit, but you know, like we had some of the first print work from Trevor Henderson and David Romero, who are very talented horror illustrators. 
And they've now gone on to do quite a few covers for other series in mainstream comics. We've actually had Trevor on. He's a great yeah, dude. For... Trevor's yes. the best, yeah. Trevor's such an integral part of Razorblades. Inviting him to do that first cover, I think, helped explode our audience out of the gate. Mm. And working with him is such a dream. And we've gotten to work together on numerous things. He's done covers for Department of Truth. Yeah, the Bigfoot cover. <laughs> yeah, I'm still looking for that. Department of Truth is one of my brother's favorite books. Oh, awesome. And it's unusual because it's a horror-oriented story that he recommended to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and i actually read it unlike when i recommend things to him but <laughs> but we the the trevor henderson cover came out right around the time we had him on the pod and i've been still trying to hunt it down because i refuse to order something sometimes i want to find him in the, the wild well, I'll have to go looking for it. <laughs> and i haven't been to a con because of, you know everything yeah but that's that's on my my list he actually he did two for us he did a Starface man and he did a bigfoot and i'm sure we will have him back in the run of the Yay. series and and David Romero, who did um, the third cover to Razor Blades, the hands reaching out from the from underneath the bed, he is actually illustrating issue fifteen of Department of Truth, which is insane to look at because it is a hybrid prose and illustration. But David is one of like the the fastest and most dedicated artists I've ever worked with, and. If you've seen other like prose illustration issues in the past that strike you as kind of lazy, you are not going to have the feeling with this issue. <laughs> like it, it is the most comprehensively designed prose illustration hybrid comic issue I've, I've ever seen. And well, I think really it's exciting. just going to help catapult David to all sorts of cool new opportunities. Yeah, that cover is gorgeous. And, and issue four, yeah, Becky Cloonan, whose work is always. Wonderful. Becky, uh, yeah, she's amazing. Ian Bertram did the second cover, and um, Alvaro did the fifth yes. one. Um, James's collaborator on the Nice House on the Lake, which is just like whew, such a, a murderer's row of talent for these first five covers, and it's really hard to choose which one was going to be the hard cover. But I think David's illustration of just like hands under a bed is, is such a, like an iconic nightmare mm. image that it summed up Razor Blades really well. You mentioned you've got a lot of stuff coming up that you can't talk about. Is there anything else you have coming up that you can? Yeah, I, and I also I can tease some of it vaguely, I think. Um, <laughs> well, so you mentioned in the beginning that there's a second Spider-Ham, which hasn't been officially announced. Oh, okay. But I saw it on the Scholastic page, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's on the Scholastic page. It's on Amazon. It's, you know, the cover's out there. Shadia is such an amazing collaborator. She also illustrated a, a novel, a middle grade novel that I have coming out next year. Oh that we worked on together. So, I mean, that's technically on Amazon too, but hasn't been announced yet, but it's a really funny license I got to work with. So I'm excited about that. I'm currently working on my first series for a major superhero publisher that I think is going to be announced soon. And my first ongoing series for a monthly publisher that's going to be announced soon. And awesome. Trying to figure out how vague I can be while still mentioning this. One of the things James and I want to do with Razorblades is make sure that everything in the magazine stands alone, but if it's a testing ground for creators to work on ideas that and they want to expand on elsewhere, very much in the spirit of like Taboo was for From Hell, mm. then we wanted to provide that opportunity. And a couple of the things you saw in Razorblades are going to appear in longer forms elsewhere, which may or may not include a story I did. So you can see a preview of something to come for me in the pages of Razorblades. Oh, fantastic. That's exciting. And I think that covers most of like the pending. um... Oh, actually, no, I, 
I don't know when this is going to go live compared to when this announcement is going to go live, but I got a very fun opportunity to do something in the spooky nonfiction realm for younger readers that will run quite long and is going to be a, a really fun project, I think, to kind of bridge two sections of my writing world. Oh, that's perfect. Well, that sounds really fun. Most excellent. Yeah, and, and lots of Department of Truth, other plans with James, and, you know, Razorblades is finished for now. The first volume is done with issue five, but, you know, we are not done with it. <laughs> when, oh, thank you. <laughs> when, when it comes back is, is a big open question, but there will be more Razorblades. I, I think James and I are both pretty eager about that. It's just a matter of scheduling and what's going to make the most sense. And the more people who pick up the hardcover, you know, the, the better chance for us to, like, do it in a in a big bombastic way when we do do it. I can tell you there's going to be three copies just in this room. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I have to say too, I mean it's not like the most fun thing to say, but there's so many shipping and printing issues going on in the industry right now that yeah. like this is the best time ever to actually pre-order books because we're all having such a nightmare of getting things out when we want them to come out and making sure that we hit the print runs we want to hit print runs. So not just for my own work, for anyone's work that you like. This is the, the best time in our lives to like actually pre-order books mm-hmm. and, and make sure that publishers know that. Well, yeah, Steve, love your work, but we absolutely love talking to you tonight. Thank you so much for <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much talk. for coming on. This is thank you stellar. for having me anytime. I hope you know down the line we can revisit when some of these things come out and whatever franchise you're on to then. Uh, not not the later Hellraiser. I was about to say, I know you like the first Hellraiser. <laughs> now, so. Yeah, if you if you make it to Hellraiser, invite me for one of the first four. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> Don't make me come no on debtor, after that. No debtor, no hell world, no. <laughs> I respect the distinction there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we got to have you on for one of the uh, one of the um, pretentious ones too, at some point. <laughs> oh yeah, please. The the more the more pretentious, the better. <laughs> I'm your man for that. Most excellent. Nighthouse coming up. <laughs> Once again, big thanks to Steve Fox for coming on. Uh, again, can't recommend Party and Pray, Night Train, Razor Blades, Cheater Code. Everything I've read by Steve has been fabulous. We'll link to it all on our Twitter page. But that was an absolute blast. And yeah, this is what a fun franchise to talk about. This has been great so far. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. There's just so much to mine here, you know, of interest, great writing at times, great effects at times. You know, it, it never fails to entertain on some level or another. You had so many bets right there. At times, this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Not every film is perfect, and every film has some flaw, but they all make up for it in their own ways. I, look, so far, I'd say all four of these films that we've watched have, have a lot of merit. They've been, you know, I complain about details in it, but I've enjoyed seeing them. And, you know, this is really my first time through like i said i've seen the first three before but this was the first time you know and i'm looking forward to the next four really i it's it's weird talking about them as such given the divergences between the films but i it's fascinating to go through this and to to look at these movies that have been you know part of my pop culture background forever that i just you know and we do a horror podcast but i've never watched them so yeah, speaking of the next four movies, so just to give folks an idea of what we've got coming up after this episode and how this is going to work. So after this episode, we're going to do a little Christmas episode. 
then we're going to have our Toby Hooper, Robert Englund bonus episode, which is going to bridge the first half of Nightmare on Elm Street and the second half. So we're going to cover the pilot for Freddy's Nightmares, which aired after Dream Master and was directed by Toby Hooper. It's terrifying. And in that same episode, we're going to cover The Mangler, <laughs> which won the Twitter poll for which Toby Hooper, Robert England collaboration we should you do. You brought this on yourself, Jake. <laughs> no, you brought it on me. <laughs> and then after that bonus episode, then we'll be coming back to Nightmare on Elm Street and we'll be doing an episode with another four installments. We'll be doing Dream Child, Freddy's Dead, New Nightmare, and the remake. We will not be doing Freddy vs. Jason. We're going to hold off on that one until we cover Friday the 13th. And then once we cover Friday the 13th all the way through, then there'll be a bonus episode where we'll do Freddy vs. Jason. Absolutely. Which gives you an idea how you should vote in our next franchise poll. Could be several years before we get to it otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Stop trying to swing the vote. Let the people get what they want. (laughs) No. <laughs> He's such a grump. <laughs> I'm the one who's got to watch the movies. All they got to do is listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but the podcast is longer than the movies. So, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> and better, better, better. Uh... <laughs> I I was thinking about that today. I was I made a joke on Twitter the day we we're recording this. It's uh, Cyber Monday that they were recording this and. Trapper Shope, who we, we mentioned, is selling his famous I'm not having fun anymore shirts. And I commented on it about it being, you know, how I feel during Nick's picks when we're prepping for these. <laughs> but my first thought was, this is how I feel during hour six of our podcast. But I didn't want to say that <laughs> on Twitter because I felt like, let's not sell ourselves short here. But... <laughs> and a little Easter egg for everyone who's listened to the very end of this multi-hour elm street discussion a little little nugget of bitterness there right <laughs> but no, look i i mean i can't speak for the franchises i haven't seen but th- this is an endlessly fascinating group of films that have so much stuff to mine and talk about and we've had such spectacular guests to look at them with us this has been a really fun episode to put together and i hope people enjoy it as much as it's been a wonderful time we're enjoying working on it and i you know i mean you know talking and not so much eric having to edit all of our bullshit (laughs) (laughs) eric's over here like you have a fun time i've got the next three weeks of my life cording away trying to get nick's fan out of everything he says (laughs) all you gotta do is watch black christmas asshole (laughs) spoilers well I rolled you into this. I'm going to roll you out of it. I want to thank everybody for listening. We had a blast. Hope you did too. Uh, This is Nick signing off saying, you know, keep it well, my piggies. Uh, This is Jake coming up out of the boiler room saying, hey, I can't wait for the rest of this, but uh, it'll be nice to be out of the fire for a few minutes. So back when we had our discussion of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, I made the crack about the greenest eyes in Elm Street, the riff on the bluest eyes in Texas. And Jake stipulated that that was how I would have to end the episode was by singing that. He said specifically that that needed to be what replaces the end theme. And I was waffling on it until I remembered how much Jake hates acapella. Yes! Oh, shit. Yes! I apologize for everyone whose ears are about to ache, but courtesy of Adobe Audition's multi-track functionality to sing us out, I present to you Eric Capella. The greenest skies on Elm Street are haunted.
haunting me tonight. Like the scars that fill his evil face, his hands are filled with knives. Where did I go wrong? Did I sleep too long? Or shall I wake in fright? The greenest skies on Elm Street are haunting 